Sportsnet tonight. Sportsnet 590, the fan. George Russick, show Ali here for the next three hours of what we hope is average to good radio. Average to good, I think, that would be a a good benchmark for the both of us show because I used to work at a big box electronics store years and years ago show. Okay. And the uh, the motto was under promise over deliver. That's what I try to do with every single one of my shows on the radio. I try to under promise and over deliver. You're a greeter, right? Uh, first of all, how dare you? Oh, pardon Second me. of all, um, I was in loss prevention. But uh. yes, part of that was, <laughs> hello there. Have a great day. Bye-bye now. Oh, is that a return? Did you ever have to put stickers on anyone's stuff as yes. they left? That was part of the deal. I'm trying to remember what people did back then. And then you had to catch and you had to check receipts on the way out, especially on big purchases. All right. Yeah, very, very important job. But under promise, over deliver was the M.O. And that's what I hope today's show is. Uh, we're looking from average to good, and hopefully we can exceed that. If not, well, I warned you ahead of time. Uh, busy show, Ian Tullick, Leafs writer analyst for the Maple Leafs Hostel, will join us in about 27 minutes. Talk about the Leafs. Snapping their winning streak last night the hands of the L.A. Kings thanks to that 5-1 loss down at Scotiabank. Louis Zatzman at the top of the next hour, managing editor for Raptors Republic. Raps getting set to face off against the Celtics in Boston. Lots of Ben Simmons rumors to the Celtics potentially. That's interesting. And the Raptors have been interesting so far this young season. Jonathan Davis, host of Ice Cap on Sirius XM NHL Radio, will join us at 10.30. Look around the league. Derek Clawson, NFL analyst for Football Outsiders at 11 o'clock. And if you missed John Morosi on the fan drive time with Ben Ennis, you'll hear that interview later on in the program. Um, show Leafs lost last night and... Uh, we have an opportunity here to take some phone calls because uh, you just heard Blair and Barker do a fantastic job teeing up the Blue Jays offseason and what might that look like. But uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, give us a call, 416-870-0590, star 590 on the mobile, or shoot us a text, 590-590, name and location. This is what I wanted to ask you, show, right. and opening it up to the listeners. What has been more concerning for you or what needs to be addressed? I think needs to be addressed because the Leafs have got off to a solid start. I think they've they've worked off that hangover they had to losing to the Habs. And then all of a sudden this team is starting to do well again. That The hangover of losing to the Habs I think is finally gone here. And that five-game winning streak kind of proved that. But to me, what needs to be addressed more moving forward here? Is it the blue line? So now all of a sudden, heading into that game tomorrow night against Philadelphia, Justin Hall is going to be back in. Travis Dermott's out. And obviously, Muzzin struggled a little bit so far this season, and Brody struggled a little bit so far this season. And I really think they're missing Zach Bogosian on this blue line. He gave him that extra bit of toughness and veteran leadership. Although we've seen flashes of Sandine and Lilligren play well, but how much can you really depend on those guys, especially as we head towards the end of the season and hopefully into the playoffs? Or is it something that I keep hammering home show? Is it secondary scoring? We saw it last night. 
if the big guys aren't scoring all the goals, and they were during this winning streak, this team has a hard time winning. If I look at Kasha, Richie, Simmons, Engvall, and Camp show, you know how many goals they've combined for and they've each played 13 games this season? Not a lot, I'd imagine. Four. Oof. Four. And Richie has none. Secondary scoring's always been an issue on this team. And I get it that you've uh, the majority of the salary cap is sunk into four, those four guys, and I understand that because they're all incredibly talented players, and John Tavares is scoring at a very nice clip so far. But what do you think is an area that needs to be addressed sooner than later? Is it go out there and add a piece on the blue line, or is it something secondary scoring-wise? Because last night was another example that if the big boys aren't getting it done, it's hard for this team to win. I think for me, it's got to be the secondary scoring. Just right now, I think there there are still some some strides I'd like to see, or you know, at least I I, I think I'm open to waiting on seeing if any more strides come from guys like Dermot or you know the younger guys like Sandini and, and Lilligren. And you and I have talked about those two um, at length, but you know, they, and and I will say those two, by the way, last night played I thought pretty terribly, <laughs> considering we've heaped a lot of praise on them. Uh, so far in this young season, but it's it's true. The bottom six right now with Engvall, Kampf, Kasha, Richie, Spezza, Simmons. Like Spezza has looked pretty good, but again, he's a fourth liner, maybe a third Three liner. Three goals. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know what yep. I mean? Like it's it's. I I don't mind what Spezza has done, but at the same time, that's not going to be what carries you through games, right? Like like you said, I want to say prior to last night's game, the last thirteen straight goals had been scored by Matthews, Nylander, Tavares, or Marner. And yep. then they, and then you know, you get you get goalied by Jonathan Quick, and they can't solve it. And what's what, where are the goals coming from? I, I I would like to see some maybe not necessarily wholesale line shuffling, but I mean, you know, I've I've also talked about Andre Kasha, and I mean, I'd like to see Kasha maybe get some time with the top six. But then again, even if he does, that doesn't exactly solve the problem with the uh, the bottom mm-hmm. six either. Four one six eight seven zero zero five ninety one triple eight triple six zero five ninety star five ninety on the mobile shoot us a text as well five ninety five ninety. What needs to be addressed sooner than later? Is it the blue line again, or is it the bottom six? And show you and I have talked about this uh, a lot. And to me, if you're going to have a bottom six, the Leafs still don't have an absolute shutdown line they can throw out there against the team's best forwards. Right. And to me, maybe this is a bit of stubbornness on Keefe and Dubis, but I don't want to see Austin Matthews trying to square off against the number one center of the other team. I just don't want to see it. Even we saw it last night. Uh, there were stretches where uh, Philip Deneau, again, is the kryptonite for the Maple Leafs. Uh, there are stretches during the playoffs. We saw it against the Habs. We've seen it repeatedly when they played the Bruins that I want the Leafs to have a checking line against the number one line of the other team. I don't want Matthews in that situation. I want to get him away from that. And we didn't see that as much as we should have in that series against the Habs. I'm okay with the lack of secondary scoring. If the Leafs had a bonafide shutdown line that's out there and just shut the opposing team's number one center, number one winger, whatever the case may be, because the Leafs just don't have that on the team right now. They don't show, and that's what makes this even more concerning is that, well, you're not scoring from the bottom six, and you're also not providing a service like a shutdown line. It's tough to win in this league in the salary cap era when you're just not getting much from that bottom six. 
Well, you know what? You mentioned Austin Matthews there a couple times, George. And one thing that has been kind of, I don't know, I don't know if concerning is quite, I'm not, I don't know if I'm concerned just quite yet, but I guess last year, you know, Austin Matthews is a big guy, right? I mean, he's a, he's over six feet tall. He's a pretty, I think last year he was, he weighed around, you know, 220, 230 or so, or maybe it's slightly less than that, but either way, he was, he was using his frame often last year to push guys around. And, you know, we talked a lot about the idea of, you know, the, the Leafs buying into making themselves harder to play against. And part of that, at the very least, was Austin Matthews using his frame and, and pushing guys around when he wanted to, when he needed to. Uh, this year, I feel like he's doing it less. And again, you know, he had the wrist surgery. Maybe he's, again, I, I feel like that's, uh, the further we get away from his, his return, I feel like the less you can make that excuse for him. But at the same time, right now, I feel like I'm seeing him get pushed around a lot more than I saw last year. And I'm, I'm seeing right now on Hockey DB, he's, he's listed as 205. So he's clearly slimmed down. And you know what? He, he's blowing by guys with his speed and with that wicked shot. And it's really fun to see sometimes, including last night. And sure, sure he didn't score. But at the same time, boy, I just it's, it's a little strange seeing as big a guy of Austin Matthews get bullied by the Kings, for example. And I was kind of, I was it just kind of, I don't know if that's concerning to you at all either. Uh, you know what, Show when I, in that series against uh, the Habs and stretches during the regular season, we saw Austin Matthews be a little more physical and use his body. And one thing that Austin Matthews doesn't get nearly enough credit for is his ability to take the puck away. I'm not saying it's Pavel Datsuk level, but it's pretty damn good. He's a vacuum on the puck. He's very good at doing that, taking away, creating these opportunities by stripping the puck. He's very good at doing that. Physicality is a thing that we'd all like to see Austin Matthews be a little more physical, but when you're such a gifted goal scorer, there has to be kind of a happy medium. But you look at Alex Ovechkin, even he still throws out the big body checks, but even he is not as physical as he used to be because he has to think of the longevity of his career. When I talk about physicality, uh, show uh, Nick Ritchie's a big guy that I just don't know if it's in him to play physical. Yeah. And at what point do the Leafs who sign him do this two year deal at $2.5 million? At what point do they say this isn't working for us anymore? He needs to go. Like I, I, I haven't, have you seen one good game? From Nick Ritchie yet this season? Have you seen, wow, what an impact he's made on this team? And I don't want to just zero in on him because I actually really like the Andre Kasha signing as well because of what I've seen from him in Anaheim, especially before he dealt with a rash of injuries. He, he was an up-and-coming good young player. Between Kasha and Ritchie, I just hope Kyle and Sheldon don't, don't get stubborn on this. If it isn't working here, go out there and find another option. Right? Yeah. Don't don't mi- try to make this work, and then come playoff time, they're doing nothing for you. That's what I'm worried about here. What what is like the the timeline of of seeing what these guys are going to bring? Because secondary scoring or lack thereof is definitely an issue that's continually be- that has been an issue here for now, season after season. Boy, the Nick Ritchie stuff. I mean, again, I don't want to like you said, you don't want to zero in on the guy and blame literally everything on him. But at the same time, like he, I feel like you often hear Sheldon Keefe before and after games and his pregame, the postgame, on off days, after skates, and so on. He'll he'll talk to the media and he almost always gets at least one or two questions about, about Nick Ritchie. And 
it, it always it, it almost feels like they're like intentionally pumping his tires a little bit, if yeah. only to. And I don't know if that's just to boost the guy's confidence or what, but because you then, then you hear what they're saying about him, and then you actually watch the hockey games and you see him play on the ice, and he's just he's just not really doing the things that Keith and company are saying that he's doing, right? And I'm not I'm not oh. saying they're lying. It's it's just that it really does feel like they're trying to to mentally get this guy going, and it's just at least through 13 games, I guess now after last. Last night's game it just hasn't really worked and if, if that's the case i mean you know i've talked about before about with the morgan riley contract who will be on their way out at the end of the season and i've said before maybe it's alexander kerfoot right now it, it pretty much has to be nick ritchie and his two and a half million dollars that's show ali i'm george russick it is sportsnet tonight on sportsnet 590 the fan which area needs to be addressed quickly uh, is it the secondary scoring or is it the blue line? 416-870-0590, star 590 on the mobile. We'd love to hear from you or shoot us a text, 590, 590, name and location. That being all said about the secondary scoring, have we spent a lot of time on it, show? Um, who's the pair out there that if the Leafs did play the Lightning or the Bruins in the playoffs, uh, who's the pair you want out there against the Kucherov line? Who's the pair out there you'd want against the Perfection line? Because I'm not sure they have one right now. Oh, I'll tell you this. It's not uh, Morgan Riley and Travis Dermott because, my God, that I mean, I will ask. We should ask Ian Talk about this because Ian is a huge he's like a Travis Dermott truther. He lo- I think he loves Travis, Travis Dermott. So I'm interested to hear what he has to say. Truther about- or apologist. Maybe, Which one is it? <laughs> might, at this point, it might be apologist because, boy, I mean, Dermott, like you said off the top, Dermott probably getting bumped out of the out of the, the sixth rotation right before uh, for Hall in the next game and he just hasn't looked great. I just, I want, I think he's only signed for the one year and I just wonder at which point you say, all right, you know what? There is still a lot of potential here, but you know, it's not going to cut it. They're going to have to move on. I, I wonder if that's going to come to a head this coming off season, unless something really dramatically changes. And sure, again, 13 games into the season, lots and lots of hockey left this year, but I just, I don't know this year, George, what I've seen out of Travis Dermott and really no matter who he's been paired with, it, it hasn't looked great. Yeah, and Travis Dermott's another shining example of how the fans and media in this city, because a player is young right away, he's going to be up and coming and be a great player. Like, it takes a long time for defensemen to develop. It's the old 200-game adage in the NHL, and Travis Dermott's not that young anymore, right? Travis Dermott is what he is at this point of his career. He's a guy who can play in your bottom pair, maybe be that seventh defenseman on your team, unless he gets a little better. Because right now, I don't know how much faith can you put in Travis Dermott. And it feels like uh, the bloom has definitely fallen off the rose when it comes to Justin Hall, a guy who had that nice pair with Jake Muzzin last season. But I brought up the example with you um, from a few years ago when the Leafs signed Mike Komisarek. Right. Uh, Mike Komisarek really benefited from playing with Andre Markov. And I think last season... When Jake Muzzin was healthy, I think Justin Hall really benefited playing with a healthy Jake Muzzin. Uh, The phone lines, uh, we got a caller here. I'm excited. Bob from Toronto. Bob, thanks for calling. What needs to be addressed first, Bob? The blue line or the bottom six? No, I think uh, what you need is forget the defense for a moment. Let's talk about when they got knocked off by Montreal last year. Every radio commentator in this city... And every TV commentator all agreed in the newspapers that the Leafs needed four good forwards. Read the Boston Bruins' first line, Winnipeg's first line are all talented, but they got grit. We had to get four grit hockey players the way Tampa Bay did two, three years ago. 
and turn them back into a Stanley Cup winner. The Leafs have no grit up front. And when you watch them against Boston the other night, there was times like it was a peewee team playing against a midget club. And if it had been the playoffs, the score wouldn't have been 5-1. All right, Bob, thanks for the call. Um, There's something there. Okay, I know it's oversimplifying things when we say just grit show. But to me, it's not necessarily grit. It's being hard to play against, right? And last season in that playoff series against the Habs, the Leafs weren't particularly hard to play against, right? Players like Gallagher and Anderson were getting to the dirty areas, and they weren't getting moved. And the Habs are doing the opposite. The Habs were punishing the Maple Leafs in front of their net. And obviously, the Habs ran out of a ton of steam uh, when they played that uber-talented Tampa Bay team because of what that takes out of you, that style of play. But it isn't necessarily grit to me. It's being hard to play against. You obviously need to be fast, and you need to be you need to skate incredibly fast in today's league to be a good team. But it's the fact that they're not that difficult to play against. And it's easy when the Leafs are playing games in late October and early November and winning these exciting games against Tampa and Boston. But when the intensity ramps up in the Stanley Cup playoffs, you need to be tough to play against. And with this roster, how it's currently constructed, and Nick Ritchie was brought in to add that size and grit. But as we've seen so far in 13 games of Nick Ritchie, he's not bringing that element to this team. They still need guys who makes the Leafs difficult to play against show. I've like I've liked what Bunting has brought to this team uh, in spurts. I've liked what again in spurts what Kampf has brought to this team. But again, those guys Bunting, uh, you know, he's, he's on the top line or in the top six here and there. And and you know what, he's he's a grinder. He's going into the to the the dirty areas of the rink and digging the puck out to get to the to the star players. And that's all well and good. And I know they kind of hope he's going to turn into the, the the Zach Hyman. But but still, I mean, I don't. I, can you really bet on that happening? No, absolutely not. And then like you say. Nick Ritchie taking up the uh, two and a half million dollars a year this year and next year that he is. I mean, don't you think that that could have been filled better? That that money could have been allocated better for, you know, quote unquote, grid, a sandpaper, a little bit elsewhere, given what we're seeing. I know there's pretty much no way for them to know that it would would backfire again, 13 games in still, but backfire Mm -hmm. this spectacularly. They couldn't have known it would have been this bad. But boy, I mean. Like you, you need, an, and I'm not saying you need another bunting necessarily, but I do agree that when you look at the top six and you look at Kerfoot, for example, is he really going to be doing that dirty work? Probably not, right? Yeah, and and Kerfoot seems to be the guy that we all think because of what he makes will not be on this roster next season yeah. as well. And credit to Kerfoot though in that series against the Habs, at least through the first few games, he was noticeable and was making a difference. But nobody played well. Maybe outside of William Nylander in the back end of that series when they just fell apart against Montreal. Um, Alex from St. Catharines joins us here on Sportsnet tonight. Alex, what needs to be addressed first, the blue line or the bottom six? Well, I I think uh, I'm sorry to change the paradigm of the question, but I think that the the structure is fundamentally flawed with the team. And I don't blame the the players. I remember years ago uh, when I, I was a massive Leaf fan, I watched Shane Corson shut down Mogilny, who was widely recognized as a, a way more superior talent. And that taught me that tactically you could take out a, a team's horsepower with a, with a player that, that played with that intensity and grit that I think that you're, you're alluding to and talking to, talking about being tough to play against. And so when, when you look at how, how the game is played during the regular season – 
I get caught up and think, wow, look at these freewheeling four top players that are scoring goals. But we know that, that fundamentally the players are a different style of hockey. The grit and that heaviness comes out. And, uh, and when you look at tactically that Corson style shutting down uh, one or two players on your team, you're effectively taking out the other two that, that feed the, 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 the guys. So ultimately you knock out or you concentrate on two, you knock out four, and that fundamentally leaves you so exposed that I, I don't think there can be any expectation that that bottom six contribute because you've got peanuts to pay them, and that's what you get. All right, Alex, thanks for the call. Um, show we've talked about this a lot, that it, are the Leafs fundamentally flawed? And I, I had that big rant with you, I think, a couple weeks ago. Right on how um, to Stanley Cup champions have all these specific ingredients that not necessarily this Maple Leaf teams have. And one of those is a shutdown line. One of them is a bottom six that can chip in offensively, having a number one blue liner, having a true number one goaltender. I don't think the Maple Leafs have all of these things. I'm not sure what Jack Campbell is at this point of his career. Uh, he's been spectacular during this five-game winning streak, struggled a little bit last night, and, in, and, of course, in Jack Campbell fashion, blamed him for the loss when clearly that wasn't on him last night. But the Leafs took a lot of chances with some lottery tickets this offseason, right? Bunting's been decent. It's been a good, solid pickup. Sure. Kosh has been disappointing, and Bunting's been disappointing. And those three guys were brought in here to change the makeup of this team a little bit and show through how many games, 13 games of this Maple Leaf season, it just feels like a lot of the same. And I don't want to crap on what they've done this week. Those were good wins against the Lightning and the Bruins, and the arena was electric, and Mitch Marner looks like he's having fun and he's having a ton of confidence, and John Tavares is potting a lot of goals. But it just feels like a similar makeup, and last night again was another example of that. You know, it's funny when you look at the team on the other side of the ice last night, the Los Angeles Kings, and they have certainly they have uh, Jonathan Quick, who who turned back time to what the early 2010s to to make a lot of really ridiculous stops, basically. But you look at the the rest of that lineup, right? Like Kempe, Kopitar, Brown, Deneau, of course, we talked about. I follow um, Trevor Moore, a former Leaf himself. It's just I I almost feel like the style the Kings play in terms of being so up tempo, at least what we saw last night. I almost feel like that was what the Leafs were advertised to be. And for whatever reason, they play... I mean, sure, sure, they do play very fast and with the skilled type of hockey that you know the players of Matthews and Nylander and Tavares and Marner are capable of playing. But, and then again, like you say, Jack Campbell wasn't completely at fault. He, you know, he, he didn't have his greatest game, but again, a lot of guys breaking in on him alone. I'm not going to not gonna really throw, you know, hang him out the dry entirely. But at the same time, it's just... I feel like the Kings played more like we want the Leafs to play last night than the Leafs have played all season, essentially. Yeah, um, and and that was tough last night, right? Because there were instances where the Kings were just skating past the Leafs' blue line, and there was something we saw this season from the Leafs is that uh, the speed was kind of back, and last night it just wasn't, yeah. and it was neutralized by the Kings. And some guys who have barely made a difference on their roster this season, Anthony Cio plays his first game, Trevor Moore, the former Maple Leaf, comes back and, and to haunt them a little bit. But, yeah, you're right. That that was a vintage performance last night from Jonathan Quick. And it just, again, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of the same, that if the big guys aren't producing and getting shut down a little bit, 
it's going to be hard for this team to, to, to win. And in the playoffs, when everything is so much about matchups and shutting down your top players, the Leafs haven't gotten that secondary scoring in the playoffs. And I think secretly that's one of the biggest reasons why they haven't won a playoff series in a bajillion years. All right, Ian Tullick, Leafs writer analyst for the Maple Leafs Hostel, will join us straight ahead. We'll get his opinion on our topic. And later on this hour show, uh, I want to talk to you about uh, my favorite subject of all, Social media. Ooh. We'll do that to wrap up the hour. All it's right. Sportsnet tonight, George and Show. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Sportsnet tonight. Sportsnet 590, the fan. George Russick, Show Ali here till midnight. Top of the next hour, Lewis Zatzman, managing editor, Raptors Republic. Tip the Raptors and Celtics. And at 10.30, we'll talk to Jonathan Davis, host of Ice Cap on Sirius XM NHL Radio. But joining us on the line right now, right now to talk some Maple Leafs, he's a Leafs writer analyst for Maple Leafs Hot Stove. We say good evening to Ian Tullick. Ian, how are you? Not too bad. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks for jumping on um, tonight. We, we opened the uh, phone lines up to the listeners. I want to get your opinion on this. It's 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 a, it's a recurring theme here with the Maple Leafs. Uh, what needs to be addressed more, Ian? Is it the blue line that the Leafs are kind of throwing things up against the wall and hoping they stick? Or is it the lack of secondary scoring? These issues seemingly we're talking about year in, year out. What do you think needs to be addressed sooner than later? Well, I think the defense eventually will sort itself out just when you look at the talent that's on the roster right now. To start the season, Jake Muzzin and TJ Brody didn't look like themselves. They weren't defending the rush well uh, at all, especially TJ Brody, and that's somewhere where he's been strong his whole career, especially last season alongside Morgan Riley. We saw Riley up in the play as the fourth forward a lot, and TJ Brody is the last man back defending two-on-ones. He was excellent at that last year. To start this season, especially the first 10 games or so, he was brutal at defending in the rush. So I think he's really come a long way to improving that aspect of his game. With Jake Muzzin, again, we expect him to be the guy who runs Toronto's top defensive pair, regardless of who he's playing beside. And to start the season, that wasn't the case. Both him and Justin Hall really struggled. Now we're going to see Justin Hall get back in the lineup tomorrow night. Really curious to see how that pairing plays, because if Muzzin and Hall can get back to what they were doing last season and the season before that, I think it goes a long way towards solidifying the defense of this group. When it comes to the offensive firepower at the top of this lineup compared to the middle six and the bottom six, I think it is what it is at this point when you look at the construction of the roster. Toronto's paying their four highest paid forwards a lot of money to produce the bulk of the offense, both at five on five and at five on four. They throw all those four forwards on the ice and they're expected to be one of the top power play units of the NHL. That obviously wasn't the case last season, but it looks much more close to it this season, especially when you look at all the key metrics, shots, scoring chances, expected goals. They're all in the top two or three of the NHL right now. Behind Edmonton's incredible power play that seems to be breaking all the records in that department, but still very strong. Definitely something that I'd expect them to hold on to this year. But I don't blame you for being worried about the depth scoring because it's been an issue the last couple playoff runs. When the Stars aren't producing, are you going to get production out of a Pierre Engvall line? Are you going to get production from Wayne Simmons on the fourth line? I can understand why you're a bit worried about that, but at the end of the day, I think you need your star players to be producing if this team is going to make a run. So at the end of the day, I think that's what matters the most. If the top guys are producing, you're going to win games. If they're not producing, you're probably going to lose some games. 
So, Ian, you know, I, I was talking with George about this in the first segment, and if there's one player I'd like to see of all the from the bottom six, I suppose, grow on another line sometimes, it's Andre Kasha. He does some like some really creative things with the puck, but is stuck with guys who, you know, probably by design a little bit, don't do all that much. Is, is it crazy for me to say sometimes I'd like to see him play on the top line with Matthews or maybe even with Tavares and Marner? I don't think it's crazy at all. I was just reading Shayna Goldman's latest article at Sportsnet today, and it was about some of the best puck transporters in the NHL right now. I know the goals and the assists, those are the big numbers that everyone cares about, but the ability to transport the puck from the defensive zone to the offensive zone with possession, it's such a valuable trait in the modern game. There's been a lot of research that shows how repeatable it is, and it predicts future goals at a very high rate. The only leaf that was in this article at all, and there were a lot of top tens for moving the puck out of the defensive zone, moving the puck into the offensive zone, making a play after you cross the offensive blue line. None of the leafs were in the top 10 of any of those stats. The only leaf that made one of those lists was your boy Andre Kasha. He's been excellent at transporting the puck on that third line. Now, there's really no one else who can do it. David Camp isn't going to be the one carrying the load on that line. So I think you're asking a bit more of Kasha when it comes to the puck transporting. And if you move him into a top six role with a William Nylander or with a Mitch Marner, obviously he's not going to have the puck on his stick as much, but he does other things. He can go hard into corners. He can go hard into puck battles. Every time he goes down, it looks like he, it might be his last game of the season. He has these awkward collisions in corners that just scare the crap out of you if you've paid attention to his injury history throughout his career. He's a guy who never had a lot of luck staying healthy, and I know he missed practice today. He's a game-time decision tomorrow, but I'm with you. I want to see more of Andre Kasha alongside some offensive players who can keep up with the skilled plays that he can make, whether it's a Jason Spezza in a bottom six role, or like you said, moving him up into the top six to see what he can do. I think Kasha has been one of the Leafs' most impressive players this year, and if you're going to play him alongside David Camp for the entire season, he's not going to produce for you offensively. That's just not going to happen. So if you want to see what Kasha can provide for you in a more offensive role, I'd love to see what he can do with some stronger line mates. Ian, is it getting to a point where maybe Nick Ritchie needs to sit a game to kind of reevaluate things and kind of clear his head a little bit? I think if you took the names off the back of the jersey, more specifically, if you took the contracts away, I think Nick Ritchie would probably be sitting right now. But the the fact of the matter is he signed a two-year contract. They expected to get two full seasons out of him. They expected 164 games of Nick Ritchie. We're 13 games into the season, and we're already questioning the signing. I mean, let's be face it. After about four or five games into the season, it wasn't looking good. What he is as a player is he's a guy who goes hard to the net, puts a stick on the ice, and you need to find him for him to produce any kind of value for you because he's too slow to provide value on the forecheck. He's too slow to provide value on the back check. He's not a great passer. He doesn't use his weight as well as you'd like to see him use it in board battles. So the only way he really provides value at this point is by scoring goals, and he hasn't scored a goal yet this season. So I can understand your frustration. I'm sure there are a lot of people in Leafs Nation right now who want to see more from Nick Ritchie, including Nick Ritchie and the coaching staff. But what the Leafs are doing right now, I imagine, is trying to find ways to give him confidence. If you listen to some of Sheldon Keefe's quotes about uh, Nick Ritchie in the press conferences, I myself find myself getting a little bit frustrated whenever I hear them because it sounds almost untruthful at times where Keefe is pumping his tires, talking about all these skills that he has and these plays that he's making that go unnoticed because I'm re-watching Nick Ritchie's shifts and I'm struggling to find any positives he's making out there. But at the end of the day, you try to put your players in a position to succeed. And if this is a player that they're not going to be able to get rid of over the offseason because of his contract, they need to find a way to get value out of him. And that appears to be by playing him in the lineup 
with someone who can get him the puck, whether it's in a bottom six role like Jason Spezza right now, or they tried him in that top six role earlier in the year and it didn't seem to be clicking. Frankly, I don't know what the solution is right now, but I I don't know if healthy scratching him is going to make him play any better. They're kind of stuck right now. Yeah, it's true. I feel like, like you mentioned, when whenever you hear Keith talking and you know, talking about moving the puck well or forechecking and backchecking, all these different things, and then you watch the games, and it doesn't really look like he's. I don't. I don't mean not to crap on the guy, but like he's doing really any of those things. So yeah, I'm. I am really interested uh, to see what Nick Ritchie does or what they do with Nick Nick Ritchie going forward because he probably is going to be on this team um, at least until the end of the season, if not going into next year, like you said, because of the contract. Um, I do want to ask you. We talked a little bit, Ian, about. How, you know, if you, to simplify it, if you get your top guys going, you're going to win a lot of games. If you don't, you're probably not going to. Um, and I think prior to last night, they had won, gotten, gotten what, like 13 goals in a row from Matthews, Nylander, Tavares, and Marner. Um, but how much, looking back to last night specifically, how much can we chalk up Jonathan Quick uh, turning back time to like the mid-2010s? Yeah, this is the thing about evaluating hockey from night to night. I've been doing it for the last couple of years, these Leafs report cards where when the game's over, I try to assess everything objectively. I'll rewatch certain plays that I thought were important. I'll go through all the statistics, trying to make sense of everything. And it's crazy how often in hockey, the team with the better goaltender wins the game. You can break down every single back check you want to. You can go through two-on-one rushes, three-on-twos, go through all the blown coverages in the defensive zone. But the fact of the matter is the hot goalie tends to win in this sport so even though the Leafs controlled the run of shots scoring chances my nerdy expected goals that I love bringing up they didn't get more saves and that's what wins hockey games in this sport so that's what makes uh, Jack Campbell so important to this team he had an off night the other day and that's going to happen in 82 game regular season you don't win every single game but with Petr Morazic injured right now I think you bring up a, a fair point with goaltending can Jack Campbell handle the load the rest of this regular season they were counting on Petr Morazic to split starts with them. I bet you they were hoping that each goalie would start about 40 games this year. It's looking like Jack Campbell is going to be closer to that 50 number, maybe even more, depending on how often Petr Morazic can actually get himself in the crease and stay healthy. So it's something really important to consider because Jack Campbell's never handled the starter's load before in his career. I know he's talked about trying to take rest days, trying to play the long game endurance-wise so that he's healthy throughout the entire season. But... It's a load that he's never put on his body before. And at the NHL level, playing three nights a week, going down to the butterfly, however many times you're doing it, the stress on your groin, your knees. You talk to anyone in the medical profession, it's tough. And and most people would agree that you don't want your goalie starting 60 games like the Leafs did with Frederick Anderson the last few years. So it's it's tough when you're trying to evaluate this team. You want the goaltending to be something that you can count on stability-wise long-term. But if Petr Brazic can't stay healthy... Jack Campbell's health, I think, becomes a real question mark long-term. Ian Tullick is a Leafs writer analyst for the Maple Leafs Hot Stove. Joining us here at Sportsnet tonight, George and Joe. Sportsnet 590, the fan. How confident are the Maple Leafs are in their backup goaltenders if Peter Morazic out is long-term? And is that something, again, they have to go out there outside of the organization to address? Because I don't think any of us want to see any more Michael Hutchinson. I don't know what Justin Wall uh, is going to bring to the table. But uh, this seems like, as an organization... How haven't they been able to develop at least some sort of goaltender here in the last four years, Ian? I think it's a fair question. And when it comes to drafting goaltenders, there's a lot of research that shows you don't 
improve your odds of uh, getting an NHL goaltender, drafting them in the second or third round versus drafting them in the fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh round. And what that suggests to me is that, like you said, it's a development issue. It's something where when you get a goaltender at age 17 into your system, they're probably not going to be making it to the show until their mid-20s. So everything they do in that time is up to you and your development staff to get that goaltender ready. The fact that the Leafs haven't been able to do that, I think it's a fair criticism to be made at this point. Joseph Wall, I'm not sure if he's ready right now. That's the thing with goalies. You're never really sure. Even if a guy has a stellar track Sorry, record. Joe, all I called him junior. Justin, didn't I? <laughs> Justin Hall, uh, Joseph Wall. Very close. Sorry, my bad. Understandable mistake to make. I mean, is he's, he's, he played an I? NHL game yet? Yeah, I know. <laughs> totally. Anyway, go ahead. But Sorry. that's the thing with goalies. We joke that they're voodoo. It's it's so hard to predict from game to game, from season to season. So how do you know if a, if a guy in the AHL is ready to go or not? Here's the thing with the Leafs is that last year they traded a third round pick for David Riddick because they didn't love the idea of starting Michael Hutchinson. You, you saw Michael Hutchinson start one or two games at the NHL level and you go, ew, this is not something we can trust in a playoff game. Then they saw David Riddick do more or less the same thing and came to the same conclusion. So they burned a third round pick for nothing. Do you want them to do that again this year? Draft capital matters, whether or not you're using it on a player or you're using it to add players for a Stanley Cup contending window. You can't just be burning draft picks on backup goaltenders. So if you're the Leafs right now, obviously it's something you're going to be thinking to yourself because if Petr Mrazek, let's say for fun, he's not healthy come trade deadline. Do you trade for a backup goaltender? I think if you're Kyle Dubas, you're going to squint and eventually say yes because you're going to say you're in a contending window right now and you need two healthy goalies going into a playoff run because if we've seen any Stanley Cup contender go on a run over the last couple of years, one thing we know is that you need two goalies to make it. Even if it's just for one game in round two of a series, there's always going to be a moment where a starting goaltender goes through the motions. Maybe it's because you're playing every other night, playoff-level intensity. Maybe a starting goaltender just wasn't meant to go through that gauntlet 24 times in the year 2021. So... I hear what you're saying. If Petr Mrazek can't stay healthy, maybe if Jack Campbell goes down with an injury because of the extra load that's on his shoulders this year, then maybe there's a goaltending controversy all of a sudden. So I don't want to forecast too much into the future, but I hear what you're saying because it's such an important position and it's so difficult to predict that you want to give yourself as many lottery tickets as you can. And that's why a lot of teams like the Leafs are giving themselves two decent starting goalies instead of paying one goalie a lot of money because... At the end of the day, it's hard to trust one goalie to stay healthy throughout the entire season. Maybe you have two, maybe even three goalies and hope that at least two of them can stay healthy come playoff time. Well, and the thing too is, I mean, even in the next, what, two weeks or so, or by the end of next week and in the next 11 days, the Leafs will have played six games, including a back-to-back this weekend. So the question about who that backup goaltender for Campbell is, is going to be one that's, I, I imagine, going to have to be answered in the next couple of days here, Ian. And, you know, I guess since we're, since we're talking about goaltending, I'm curious, a hot topic recently has been, uh, you know, because Campbell is the probably the biggest UFA on the coming up here next offseason. What like, what does, if, if Campbell does continue his play and his, his very good play as of late and manages to stay healthy as well, and I, I know those are big ifs and a lot, a lot of hockey left in front of us, but let's just say, for the sake of this conversation that does happen, what does a contract extension for someone like Jack Campbell look like? So I know that teammates always look at other teammates when it comes to contracts. You just look at this Leaf salary structure and the second John Tavares signed that $11 million contract, that's what Marner wanted. Matthews wanted more. It's just, it's natural when you're working in the same environment with people every day to compare salaries. And if you're Jack Campbell, you look at Petr Morazic's contract, three years, $3.8 million. Would he sign that today? 
I'm not sure if you even would sign that if you're Jack Campbell, because if you look at his save percentage, he's rocking a 929 right now. I doubt he's going to sustain that throughout the entire season. But if I'm Jack Campbell's agent, I'm looking at his 921 save percentage last year for the Leafs. I'm assuming he puts up something similar to that in a much larger sample this year. I think he can get more than that in the open market. So if he's willing to take a quote unquote hometown discount to stay with this team that he really seems to like, and I don't, he's, he seems like the nicest guy in the world. I bet he'd like it anywhere he was playing. Just seems like a happy go lucky guy. I know they showed the Jonathan quick uh, backing him up at the red carpet with the towel over his shoulder and wearing the hat. He, he just seems like such a great guy. So I'm not sure how much to take out of his comments about the Leafs and saying that, Oh yeah, I'd love to stay here. I'd love to take a discount to stay here because if he's offered a, a five year, $5 million contract by another team on the open market, it's really hard to turn that down for significantly less money in Toronto. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be a tight squeeze. And if you look at cap friendly right now, it's tough to find money under the cushions when you're trying to make it all fit now that Morgan Riley signed his extension. I've talked myself into trading away Alex Kerfoot over next offseason and Nick Ritchie, and you're signing RFAs to cheap contracts and maybe a move out of defenseman. I know the Leafs are already looking at trading one of Justin Hall or Travis Dermott, but it gets tight really quick. So if it's any number above Petr Mrazek's $3.8 million cap hit on a three-year term, I'm not sure if they can even afford to keep Jack Campbell. Maybe they have to go looking for the next Jack Campbell. Uh, Ian, uh, it's always tough to quantify uh, when a player has confidence or how they're actually feeling. And I think Mitch Marner's a guy that we saw that early on in the season when he talked about how he wasn't having fun and wanted to have start having fun again at the rink. And we've seen how his play has really improved. Jack Campbell's a guy who has been synonymous with being way too hard on himself. And he was way too hard on himself last night is that something you think the Leafs are potentially have a conscious effort in doing because we we all know sports science and sports psychology is very important to professional athletes now I feel like Jack Campbell potentially that that's a detriment to him that he is just so damn hard on himself yeah and with goaltenders and pitchers it's all between the ears right you can have all the athletic ability in the world but if you don't have the mental toughness and the confidence in yourself you're not going to be able to perform when a, 20,000 plus fans are screaming at you after letting in a bad goal. So you've seen it in the documentary. You've seen it in post-game interviews. He's so hard on himself. And you just feel bad for him because you know how nice of a guy he is. When you see him being mean to himself, you just want to give him a big hug. And at the end of the day, he needs to be the one to pick himself up. So I'm sure we're all our harshest critics. I know I am when it comes to any of my hockey analysis. So if I write an article that I don't think is that great, I'm going to be super mean to myself. And I'm sure everyone in my life will be telling me, no, come on, man, pick yourself up. Don't, but that's just my process. Maybe this is his way of dealing with it. So I'd, I'd love to say I'm, I'm inside his head and I know exactly what he's thinking at all moments. I don't. I really wish I did, though. It'd make my job a lot easier. But for the time being, I've got to hope that the people he's surrounded himself with in this Leafs organization can help him get through those moments that are going to be a bit of a downer throughout the regular season. There are peaks and valleys in this market. I'm sure you guys know it from working in this industry. When things look bad, they look really bad in this city. When they look good, they look very good. But as Leafs fans, we're not used to seeing too much good. And I think with Jack Campbell, another interesting thing to consider in Toronto is he's barely lost in this city. Other than the playoffs, his win-loss record is just incredibly good. And that's something that's realistically not 
that sustainable. I doubt he's going to have a 17-3-2 record again. I doubt that this 6-3-1 record, he's going to sustain winning at that rate. There are going to be more losses to come, and they're going to be on him a few times because that's the nature of this sport. How he responds to that is what I'm going to be paying the closest attention to because, like you said, he's going to be hard on himself, and it's going to happen throughout the course of the regular season. There are going to be losses that largely fall on his shoulders I want to see how he handles that mentally and how he bounces back the game or two after that. I think that's going to speak a lot to how he can handle some of the pressure in this market and really the pressure that he's putting on himself. Uh, Ian, before we let you go, I just got to ask, are you still a uh, Travis Dermott, uh, shall we say, Stan, truther? Where, where are we at on Travis Dermott? It's getting harder and harder these days, isn't it, man? I just, you stick your neck out for someone, you attach, you, you hitch yourself to someone's wagon and you want to believe in someone. And man, there are still aspects in Travis Dermott's game that I want to believe in. I love the way he gaps up in the neutral zone and prevents the other team from gaining the zone. I think he's one of the better rush defenders on this team, but he struggles defending the cycle. There are blips defensively that it's the reason Keith doesn't trust him on the penalty kills the reason Keith doesn't trust him on the ice in the third period when they're holding a lead so these are aspects of his game that I've wanted to see him develop for the last three years and it just hasn't happened you mix that with the fact that offensively he actually hasn't really produced in the last two or three seasons he's a non-factor out there offensively despite jumping up into the play and trying to create something so I think realistically in Toronto, he's going to be a third pair defenseman. He can't play with Morgan Riley. We've seen it. I don't want to say the the sample is large enough to definitively say that, but we've seen 75 plus minutes this, this year of them getting caved in at five on five. That's not a good trend. So it's probably not the right partner for him unless they test him on a Jake Muzzin or TJ Brody pairing. And that's something that works out. I think he's destined to be a third pairing defenseman in this market, or at least in this city. And that's frankly not that valuable of an asset. Now, if he's playing on a team like Seattle or a team without very many defensemen where he got to run his own second pairing al alongside someone who could settle things down defensively, I think it might be a bit of a different story. But that's just not going to be the way it goes on this team. They need him to be better defensively. They need him to change his game to be a player he really isn't. And at that point... Yeah, I don't know. You can hear me getting frustrated as I try to convince myself of, of ways of, of extracting value out of this player. I think there's a way to make it happen, but I don't think it's going to happen in this city. So he might be a valuable candidate for a trade at this point. I know NHL teams value Justin Hall more because he played in a top four role against top competition. So if you're oh, going to trade either right? Hall... Exactly, right? So if you're going to be trading one of those players, who are you getting more for? Are you getting more for Hall or are you getting more for Dermott? One guy is younger, but one guy has more experience against top competition. Frankly, I'd like to see them keep both because I think eventually one of these guys is going to get hurt and you need seven NHL defensemen. And if you trade one of these guys, who's the next best defenseman in this organization? Christian Rubens? Brendan Manel, it, it gets pretty thin. So unless you're getting an NHL quality defenseman back in that kind of trade, I'd, I'd veer on the side of caution and, and not make a trade right now unless you're getting a, a forward of a very good caliber back in return, say a Dylan Strom, who looks a bit disgruntled right now in Chicago. Ian Tullick, Leafs writer, analyst for Maple Leafs Hot Stove. Ian, great stuff. Thanks for this tonight. Hey, anytime, guys. Have a great night. Uh, Leafs and Flyers uh, tomorrow will have a Leafs Nation postgame with Gord Stelic and Brent Gunning. After the Raptors and Celtics, we have that on the radio station tomorrow as well. After Raptors Reaction Podcast, we will have uh, Leafs Nation postgame with Gord Stelic and, of course, Brent Gunning. Um, 
that's the thing with Travis Terman, right? Uh, again, it happens over and over again in this city, and it kind of, it kind of snowballed with Nick Robertson a little bit too, right? Everybody's yeah. like, "Well, wow, Nick Robertson, wait, wait for this kid. He's going to really make a big impact. He's not going to make any money, and he's going to score like twenty-five goals for the Maple Leafs. He's going to be a real impact player. Small guy with a ton of skill. Watch him. He's still trying to find his footing as a pro." And it's what we do in this city constantly over young players. We fawn all over them when maybe they need time to kind of develop a little bit more. It's different when you're bringing in guys like Austin Matthews, who was the prohibitive number one player in his draft. That's a lot different than drafting a guy like a Travis Dermott or a Nick Robertson and hoping they pan out for you. Is that something that that we quote unquote people in Toronto do not just for the Leafs, but for basically every sports franchise in the city. I think it's more the Leafs than anything. Right. I really do. That's fair. Because I, 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 I look, I just look at what, because I look at what, you know, I mean, Scotty Barnes drafted highly. He's been great, right? Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Highly, highly touted prospect that was signed uh, inter- international prospect that was signed. He's, he took a while to get going, but he's been great, but it's true. I, I just feel like, that may be, I was just kind of thinking out loud, that certainly might be a, a Leafs yeah. thing more than anything else because and, these other guys and, have produced, right? And those guys are different, right? Because Scotty Barnes was a top five pick. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, was somebody that's been on the radar. And, of course, with his dad being who he is and all that pedigree attached to him, it's a lot different than bringing in a young guy. And sometimes just younger isn't better, show. And I think we all get caught up in, oh, look at this good young guy who's going to really have a big difference. Well, no, playing in the NHL, especially playing defense in the NHL, is incredibly difficult. And that's still the one position that takes the longest to see what we actually have in a guy. Yeah. Right? Look at Justin Hall. Now all of a sudden he's struggling. It's a tough position to play in the league. And when you have good defensemen, that's why they're virtually impossible to acquire. All right, I didn't get to my Twitter story. I'm going to do that later on in the next hour. Stuff going on right now. Apparently, Nikola Jokic suspended for one game uh, after shoving uh, Marcus Morris. Markeith Morris? Markeith. Or Marcus? Markeith. Markeith Morris last night in the back. We'll talk about that. Um, The Kings win six in a row. Uh, They beat the Habs. We'll uh, we'll look around the league in the NHL with Jonathan Davis, who's a host of Ice Cap on Sirius XM NHL Radio. But straight ahead, we'll talk some raps. Louis Zatzman, managing editor for Raptors Republic. That's show. I'm George. It's Sportsnet tonight. Sportsnet 590, the fan. When the sun goes down, we up the ante. This is Sportsnet tonight on Sportsnet 590, the fan. Sportsnet tonight. Sportsnet 590 The Band. George Russick Shirley. The bottom of the hour. Jonathan Davis, host of Ice Cap on Sirius XM NHL Radio, will join us. We'll look around the league. Derek Lawson, NFL analyst for Football Outsiders, at the top of the next hour. Woo! Which, which loss in the NFL this weekend was more shocking, Buffalo's or Dallas? Oh, boy. I'd say Buffalo, George. Yeah, that was shocking. Yeah especially because they were gigantic favorites. Uh, We'll talk to Derek about that. And we're all still waiting to hear where Odell Beckham Jr. will be signing. Apparently, we might hear about that tomorrow. But the Raptors on the road tomorrow to square off against the Celtics. We'll have that game for you live right here on Sportsnet 590. The fan to tee that up and to talk about that game against the Nets, Louis Zatzman, uh, Zatzman, managing editor for Raptors Republic. Louis, how are you? I'm wonderful, thanks. Pleasure to be on. Thanks for jumping on. Um, Pascal Siakam played in that game Sunday for the Raptors, and I don't want to. 
watching what this team looked like without Pascal Siakam, I thought to myself, life without Pascal Siakam maybe wouldn't be the worst for the Raptors, especially if they can improve their team in other areas. Did you have that thought at all creep into your head when he was out being hurt? No, I mean, the thing about why they're so good is because they stack the exact skills that Pascal has, right? They have a lot of size, defensive versatility, incredible length, closeouts to the corners. They have, you know, transition scoring. They have, you know, really long finishers. And the thing about all those skills is they're multiplicative, right? You can't just have two guys who are long and say, that's enough, we don't need more guys who are long. It's not like, you know, point guards where, you know, five point guards, that's too many. If you have two long players, adding a third is awesome. And so what made them so good, I think, for the first uh, several games of the season was because Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, Kem Birch, Gary Trent, these guys, their skills coincided. They were able to put ball pressure they were able to force more turnovers than anybody else in the league. And Pascal only helps that way. So, sure, they looked good without Pascal. They're going to look great with him. I do want to ask you as well with Pascal Siakam, uh, Lewis. You know, you see him come back in his first game, and, and I think he, look, he looked okay. There's going to be a, a conditioning-wide, a little bit of a longer road back over the, over the rest of the couple next couple of weeks, pardon me. But um, I do want to, want to ask you, do you think they're – we will see times, especially on back-to-backs in the next maybe month or so, where Nick Nurse will probably hold Siakam out of the lineup just to be on the safe side? Oh, yeah. I mean, he even spoke today. They have a back-to-back Wednesday, Thursday against Boston and Philadelphia. It's very possible he only plays one of those games. Um, Toronto's always been pretty conservative about guys who are recently returning to the lineup. Uh and you're right. I mean, he looked he looked good. I mean, his his three in transition was great to start the game. He had a couple really nice finishes also in transition. But fact of the matter is, I mean, the guy only got to play 25 minutes. He hardly touched the ball, and that's just working your way back into the game. And so I, I agree. I think conditioning is something that, I mean, you can get up to like 80 percent in practice. But NBA-level conditioning, you can only get in NBA games. And so, yeah, you know, he'll, he'll probably rest a little bit going forward. But after two weeks, maybe a month, he should be exactly at his peak. So any, any game against the Nets, of course, is, a, is going to be a tough ask, even if your team is fully healthy. I mean, you know, the, those guys are tough to handle at the, at the best of times. Um, guys like KD and certainly James Harden. But uh, the Raptors went into this game. We're talking about Pascal Siakam, first game back, first game of the season. But also they were, up, were without uh, Kem Birch. What did what did the absence of Birch for this lineup? Someone who has been, I would say, someone someone who has stabilized this lineup in a, in a nice way over the first you know eleven to twelve games, however many games we've had through the first little bit of the season. What did his absence do for this lineup? I'm so glad you asked that. People don't talk about Kem Birch that much. I mean, he's quiet. His, his numbers are quiet. His game is quiet. But, man, he has incredible impact for the Raptors. And so on the defensive end, I think you saw some really good individual stands against Kevin Durant. Pascal, OG, Scotty all had really, you know, individual moments of brilliance. Just so happens that doesn't matter against Kevin Durant. He just doesn't care what defense you play. But the team defense really was missing Kemp. And so you saw that in some of the numbers. Uh, Brooklyn shot 90% at the rim. 
They just they didn't miss any layups. That's something Kemberch changes. They took a huge percentage of their shots from corner threes. And I think a lot of that was Toronto's defensive overcompensation where they're saying, wow, you're getting a ton of layups. You're making them all. We need to pinch in and really protect the rim without Kem here. And they gave up those strong side corner threes. So, I mean, that's not something you see in the numbers, right? There's no box score stat for layups, not defended, but just deferred. There's no box score stats for the opponent takes fewer corner threes because you're on the floor. But he really helped. Lewis, how have you graded OG Ananobi's added responsibility on the offensive side of things so far this season? I'm glad you asked. I, I wrote a piece uh, this morning, actually, for, for 538 subsidiary of ESPN about that very thing. And so it's, it's interesting, right, because a lot of the modern NBA's obsession with efficiency and OG Ananobi uh, up to last year inclusive was one of the most efficient players in the NBA. His, his true shooting was over 60%. He was just an unbelievably efficient offensive player. This year, his, his scoring way up, but his efficiency is down. Right? He's shooting almost 40% from the field. He's shooting his worst from the three-point line since his rookie year, I believe. He's taking fewer free throws a game. And yet, despite that obsession with efficiency, he's massively more important offensively. He is running far more pick and rolls as a screener. He's isolating more. He is one of the best transition scorers in the whole league, not just for the Raptors. He, he is such a generalist, and he's so good at so many things that when he's off the floor, Toronto's offense actually just craters. And that's never been true of him in the past. So, so he represents a really interesting fault line where the things that people are obsessed about in the modern NBA – you know, three-point shooting efficiency are the things that are down for him, and yet his offensive game has never been better. So how do I, how do I grade him? Maybe an A minus, maybe an A. Like excellent, certainly room for improvement, but he's been just unbelievable. So Lewis, when we get to a part of the season, and you know, like we were talking about, hopefully conditioning-wise for Siakam, that is relatively speaking soon, right? But let's just say Siakam, he's fully back, green lights for him in in about a month or so. Who do you think? will be the guy to take the last shot if that's needed. Is it, is it going to be Pascal? Will it be OG Ananobi? Will it be Fred Van Vliet? Will Nurse just work with the hot hand? I'm curious who you think might be, might be the guy to hold the ball last if that's needed for, in a game for the Raptors. Yeah, it's an important question. Two years ago in 1920, Toronto had that really surprising you know, title defense season where they were the, the second-best record in the league going into um, – the bubble going into the playoffs, actually. And then last year, really disappointing. And the lineup seemed to be the same. What changed, uh, and not just you know how good they were, but actually they were one of the best clutch teams in 1920 and one of the worst ones in 2021. And what seemed to change was that rather than just going by committee, you know, Kyle Lowry closed a lot of games in 1920, they seemed to be just Pascal Siakam's team. Right? He took all the clutch shots in 2021. And he had some unlucky ones rim out, some layups, some jumpers. He also had some pretty ugly turnovers. And so the thing about clutch time is, you know, it's really just like 10, 20 minutes over the course of a season. So just a couple poor bounces can really change the numbers. But I think Toronto's at their best as a committee. And so you mentioned OG, Fred, Pascal, all three should get shots to close games. 
I think Fred will have some really big offensive games where teams just, you know, really focus on Pascal, leave Fred in single coverage, and he's just, just going to rain jumpers. So in those situations, he should run pick and roll to close games. Or if teams are closing off Fred's jumper, Pascal could get a post-up to close games. Or OG, OG Ananobi a post-up, right? They're both so big, teams really only play one guy who's big enough to defend either of them. And so, yeah, the, the last option you gave, right, who, who's the hot hand, I think that has to be the best option because we've seen Toronto try to force-feed one player who's not Kawhi Leonard, and it, it doesn't always work unless you have Kawhi Leonard, right? Yeah, absolutely. Those guys are hard to find. Louis Zatzman, managing editor, Raptors Republic, joining us here on Sportsnet tonight. Georgian Show, Sportsnet 590, the fan. We've seen a, a pretty good chunk of Gary Trent Jr. here. And obviously that, that trade was surprising what the Raptors got back in the Norm Powell trade with the Blazers. How have you graded Gary Trent's time here in Toronto? And the, a lot of the fan base was saying, well, why not just give Norm Powell that money? The Raptors would be better off if they would have kept Norm. What are your thoughts now on, on a hindsight's always twenty twenty? but what are your thoughts now on that trade, and how has Gary Trent Jr. performed in your eyes? It's funny. I think probably the most surprising thing for the season this far for Toronto, I don't think I said publicly, but I could easily have been convinced. Like, why trade him, you know, why trade Norm for Gary? Because Norm was just a better player, and they got almost the same amount of money. Yet this season, Gary Trent has evolved so much as a player. So last year, he was really just a scorer. That was the only thing he offered on the court. And so when he wasn't scoring well, when he wasn't hitting his jumpers, he was kind of a net negative. You saw that with his you know, defensive on-offs, just a, an advanced stat that says how good is the defense when you're on the court versus off the court. They were much better with him off the court. This year, Gary Trent is shooting worse from the floor. He's shooting worse from three. He, and yet he is a much better player. Right? It just goes to show when you expand your game like he has, the thing that you were good at before matters less. And so he's inefficient. He's missing. But it doesn't matter now because He's forcing so many turnovers. He's a huge part of Toronto's really, you know, funky defense that just gets a ton of steals, runs in transition. He's scoring a lot in isolation, which is something that Toronto needs. Uh, you know, uh, that late clock sort of guy if everything else is closed off. And so he's earned leeway for himself in a way that Norman Powell, for all of his talent, never quite did. Because if Norman Powell wasn't shooting well from the floor and – bear with me, I mean, he was shooting well from the floor for like two years straight. When he wasn't, he didn't give a ton more. I didn't think Gary Trent could, but he's proven me wrong already in just 11 games. It's been a huge surprise, and I've been really proud of his growth, and it makes the trade, in hindsight, look that much better. Yeah, it's true. I think, uh, you know, we always had the conversation that was even going back a couple years to about Norm Powell, about how, you know, he kind of he kind of needed the more minutes in order to get himself going. You know, he, he kind of mm-hmm. always – and he seemed to get those minutes whenever guys were injured, and, and that kind of got him got, got the spark going for him as well. And then he got sent off to Portland, and, and now Gary Trent Jr. is doing the same thing basically. So, yeah, it has been a, a really interesting season to watch for Gary Trent Jr. I do, I do want to ask you, and maybe this is a little bit more of a negative question, but just what on earth is going on with someone like Chris Boucher right now? So it's year of adjustments, right? Everybody's learning a new role. And for a guy like Chris Boucher, who is asked to 
to really add offensive punch every time he was in the game, he had room for error last year, right? If he missed a three, if he missed two threes, he wasn't going to sit on the bench. And when you have that confidence, you can sort of take risks and know that you're going to add positives in other ways. This year, Toronto's a lot deeper. A lot of that is just, I mean, Scotty Barnes has been so good. He needs to play a huge amount of minutes. He's at 35 a game. That's 35 minutes at the same position Chris Boucher played. And those are minutes directly out of Chris Boucher's pocket. And so now he enters the game. If he takes a bad three, he's on the bench, like, for the rest of the game. And so that gets in his head. He gets the ball. He's thinking, what do I do? Do I drive, pass, shoot? And you've already lost when you're thinking that. Defensively, he's always been a guy who sort of has incredibly high highs, those huge blocks close out to the corners. He's been one of the best uh, shot blockers for jump shooters in the year uh, in the league last year. But he's always made mistakes. You know, he hasn't rotated immediately. And this year, with Toronto's defense so strong on such a string, they don't need those highs. They have highs, right? Scotty Barnes. We just talked about what Gary Trent did. Ken Birch, like you said, really incredible. They have those highs, but they need a solidity. And that's what his weakness has always been. And so his role has adjusted completely away from his strengths. So can he improve? It's hard. I mean, I could see him shooting 40% from three like he did last year and still not getting time because of his defensive flaws. And so it's, it's difficult for me to see Boucher's approach to the game being one that helps Toronto in a way that it did last year. And that very flaw is what's making him uh, second-guess himself. It's, it's a real vicious cycle right now for him. I feel for the guy. I do. You can tell it's really bothering him as a player, as a person. I hope he turns it around, but I, I'm not sure if he's going to get the time he got last year, no matter what. Lewis, the small sample size of the Raptors season so far, what is more important, being a playoff team or just the continued development of these young players? So if you asked Masai Ujiri before the year, he said the continued development, right? I, I believe his words were, uh, you know, we know the future matters more than now or, or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And then they come out of the gate is one of the best teams in the East. I mean, until the last two losses. But 6-3, and three, without Pascal Siakam, they had the best net rating in the league for, I think, one night there. And at that point, you have to wonder, I mean, we're missing our best player. He's going to acclimate. Maybe we're significantly better than we thought, and the now actually matters a lot more than we thought it did. And if that's the case, then they're only, you know, a DeMar DeRozan for Kawhi Leonard swap away from a championship, to use a specific example. But generally, they might be just close. Whereas before the year, they thought, wow, we're not close at all. And so I think the answer to your question, does the future and the present matter more, changes as the present changes. Because we're seeing the present really surprise, not just the, the fans, not just the writers like myself or the, or the radio guys like yourselves, but surprise, you know, the general manager, the president, the uh, uh, vice chairperson, I believe, besides current title. And as they're surprised, I think uh, we're really going to see the decision-making process change. So I, if I had to guess, I would say the now matters 
a lot more than they uh, they suspected. And so they're no longer a team rebuilding. I don't think they want a high draft pick, given the way the team is going. They have enough guys developing. I think they want to make a run for a, a home court playoff spot. I mean, if they fall off, right, maybe they go on a six-game losing streak or whatever, they can reevaluate then. But right now, this is a all-hands-on-deck, we're-trying-to-win team. Lewis, I'm so glad you said that. When I'm watching this young Raptors, Raptors team with a guy like Scotty Barnes, all I'm thinking about is what does this team look like with a true Kawhi Leonard-like superstar? How deep they potentially go in the playoffs? Because that's immediately what I've seen so far this young season. And obviously, there's still a ton of season to go. Injuries happen. Guys kind of hit the wall a little bit, especially playing in the NBA. But the, the makeup of this team and how it looks and how it's coached by Nick Nurse I just have a sense that if they go out there and eventually acquire that superstar player, why not be a legitimate championship contender again? And the spirit of the team is still built in Kyle Lowry's image, which was total flexibility. I mean, everyone talks about how great Kawhi was, and he was for the championship. But that doesn't happen without Kyle being so unbelievably flexible as a secondary star to just suit his game perfectly. And, and Toronto has those exact players, right? Fred Van Vliet, we know, can do anything off the ball and is a great point guard now. He's 17 assists. OG Ananobi, same thing. Pascal Siakam, we saw him as the second best scorer on a championship team. We know he can go back to that. And so Toronto's built everybody in exactly that flexible mold. So no matter who they go out and get, say a Bradley Beal, you know, maybe a Zach Levine, I don't think he's available now, maybe two years ago. But any star like that would fit perfectly, and not just a scoring wing, right? You go out and get a a scoring big, that would fit perfectly as well. Toronto just built this team to maximize their their opportunities. If someone becomes available, doesn't matter from where, doesn't matter from what position, but if they can be that first scoring option, Toronto's ready to capitalize. And not a lot of teams have that same level of adaptability. Lewis, I've said this before, but uh, if I had to pick one word to describe this version of the Toronto Raptors, I've said relentless. I've heard other people use the words uh, tenacious. I'm curious if there was one word, what w- what you would use? This may be a cop-out, probably fun. All right. I think I haven't had this much joy watching a basketball team since some of those games in 1920 when the Raptors were just this plucky defending champion. But it's, it's rare to see a team that enjoys basketball this much. Scotty Barnes is just the vibe king. He's so happy. His teammates love him so much. Everyone is enjoying basketball in a way that was the exact opposite last year. And so relentless, absolutely. That is who they are. But I think for me, the thing I feel most is fun, and I know watching the players, talking to the guys, it is such a big change for them. That is the biggest thing for them as a change from last year. Uh, Lewis, before I let you go, um, I've, I've watched a couple of Miami Heat games just to see what Kyle Lowry looks like on that team. And damn, Lewis, that guy fits like a glove on that team. And how they play and how his intensity rubs off on that whole team, which is already really talented, surrounded by some impressive bigs and some good shooters. I would not, if they're healthy, I don't want any part of the Miami Heat in the postseason in the Eastern Conference, Lewis. It's not really a question. It's more of a statement. No kidding. I mean, sure, Brooklyn's Brooklyn, Milwaukee's Milwaukee. But damn, Miami's going to be a team. Like, 
it's rare you you add a guy to an already very good team and you can accentuate their strengths, right? They were they were defensively flexible, they were strong. Well, Kyle can do anything on defense. He can switch on the bigs, he can rebound. Even though he's not gigantic for point guard, he's about as strong as they come. And so he accentuates the strengths. At the same time, he ameliorates all the weaknesses that they had. They couldn't really score in the half court. Well, Kyle is a pick-and-roll wizard. He can he can help all his teammates score in the half court. They didn't get out and run in transition. He is one of the biggest sparkers of transition and has been for the last several years. He just he fixes everything for them. He makes them better at what they already were good at. It's I mean, fit like a glove doesn't even cover it how good he's been on Miami. Not to mention he and Jimmy Butler are such close friends. It's just, it's hard. It's difficult for me to watch Kyle Lowry be that good on a team that's not the Toronto Raptors. But but it is, uh, I want, you know, to see him succeed. And even he has blown me away with how successful he has been. Uh, Lewis, I just really quickly want to ask you about the whole Nikola Jokic thing. I mean, we saw, I believe, right right before you came on, I think the news broke that uh, Jokic has been suspended for one game. Markeith Morris is getting fined $50,000. And I believe Jimmy Butler is also getting fined $50,000 for, I guess, escalating. Yeah, all, all, yeah I mean, it's, it's just, I guess it, it was a mess last night. From any, by any way you look at it, I just wanted to get your take on on the, you know, the, the Morris hit on Jokic and right as this... this this game that was already out of hand was winding down, and then Jokic going and, and just blindsiding Morris, and the, I guess the fallout uh, that has resulted from that, that has, I guess, drawn in Morris's own brother, Marcus, and Jokic's brothers who were in the arena that last night as well. Yeah, it's, you know, it's indicative of a bunch of things. I think um, it's not as uh, earth-shattering. Neither of them were as earth-shattering fouls as people made them out to be. They, they, were, they were dirty plays. I think a one-game suspension, a fine, reasonable result. But the brothers coming into play really does point at just the soap opera that is the NBA these days. Because if there's one thing we know about the NBA for about the past 20 years, 15 years, they're not going to fight. They don't fight anymore, right? These are millionaires. They carry themselves with grace. They are pillars of the community. They don't fight each other. That's ridiculous. And I doubt their brothers are going to fight each other, but it does make for some good television when they tweet at each other and, and, and talk about that ridiculousness. So, you know, I think it's all in good fun. There wasn't really any chance of anything serious happening last night. And it's just, you know, adding to the headlines that the NBA seems to um, seems to collect that have nothing to do with basketball. Lewis Asman, managing editor for Raptors Republic. Lewis, great stuff. Thanks for this. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. It's always fun. Raptors and Celtics will have it for you live right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan tomorrow night. The Raptors Reaction Podcast after the final horn with William Liu as well. All right, straight ahead, uh, we'll look around the NHL with Jonathan Davis, host of Ice Cap on Sirius XM NHL Radio. Talk some Leafs with him as well. And I'll tell you about uh, something I woke up to on Twitter today's show that kind of kind of surprised me. We'll do that to wrap up the hour at the top of the next hour. Derek Clawson, NFL analyst for Football Outsiders. It's Sportsnet tonight. That show, I'm George. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Took the midnight 
Sportsnet tonight. Sportsnet, Bob Nutty, the fan, George Russick, Show Ali. Top of the next hour, Derek Kloss, an NFL analyst for Football Outsiders, will join us. Of course, um, this song was the end of the Sopranos uh, show. That's and, right. Uh, do you still do, do you still do your uh, your movie podcast at Showtime? Do you still do that? I do. I did. I just I just released an episode last night. Oh, awesome! Uh, check that out. Uh, it's always good to listen. Um, as as I say that, as I, I had to ask you if you're still doing it, but. <laughs> Um, did you see the new Sopranos that like the prequel of it? Was it any good? You know what? I actually haven't seen it. I have not seen that one yet. I, although I haven't okay. heard, I haven't heard like the most positive things about it. I, I gotta say. Really? Were, are you, were you, were you a big fan of the Sopranos? Uh, I've watched a lot of the episodes. Yeah. I wouldn't say I wasn't a huge fan, but I did watch a lot of it. All right. I, that was, and, I think uh, the Sopranos were, that was the show I watched. Like everyone has a pandemic show. That was the show I watched first when, at the very early days of the pandemic. And uh, it, they, they consider it like the greatest show of all time. Yeah. Like there's all these lists, and it's the greatest show of all time. Really good. Definitely, it's, it's definitely good. it's definitely up there. I would say at least drama wise, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. And uh, I would definitely check that out. But yeah, I, I wanted to see that movie. I just wanted to find out if you actually saw it, if it was any good, and it's worth watching. But the Oscars are going to be coming up in February, and I'll need your help for some Oscar picks because you gave me Sir Anthony Hopkins at oh, ten to one. That was so good, which was a juicy, juicy, juicy nugget from you, Shoelli. So did check that, out this uh, podcast. Did that put you over uh, Bastille and Rap, or help at least? It did. Yeah, Excellent. that pretty much clinched it for me. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, check out your podcast. It's Showtime, where you get all your podcasts. Uh, Jonathan Davis, host of Ice Cap on Sirius XM NHL Radio, joins us. Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing great. Like, I'm, George, I'm waiting for like an over under on steps up to the podium. Uh, I'm waiting for you to release those, you know, come award show. <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting, right? If we can actually do a. You can bet on anything now, especially in Europe. They have the craziest things you bet on, like the next royal baby name and all of that stuff. You can ab- absolutely bet on everything. Jonathan, I have to ask you, uh, you do what we do here. You do a great job on Sirius XM, NHL Radio. We're hearing all these stories now breaking tonight that Bob Murray, uh, there's an investigation on his conduct and how he's handled employees around the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, Jared Scaldi, his wife, Erin, they settled a sexual assault lawsuit or harassment lawsuit with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, that, that was settled out of court. This obviously Kyle Beach uh, story continues to unfold. Man, it's been tough enjoying the games on the ice when all this is going on off the ice, Jonathan. It is, um, but I think, you know, look, I mean, selfishly, you know, look, there's 10 games tonight, uh, and, and, I, and I've, you know, selfishly, uh, I've put all that on the back burner uh, because there's a lot of good stories happening on the ice. So, yeah, look, I, I don't want to – I'm not trying to ignore or, 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 you know, downplay them. And, and you know, here in, in Southern California, obviously the Bob Murray story is, is a significant one. Um, mm. But it does seem, George, and, and show that, uh, you know, according to, to reports, that it's not something, you know, it's more just, it, it, not that it minimizes it, it's more seems to be a verbal abuse situation. Uh, doesn't make it any better, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, I'm just happy that, hey, look, on a night where we've got 10 games, there's, just a, yeah. there's been a lot of, a lot of great storylines. Uh, and, you know, also in Southern California, I mean, hey, the team with the longest win streak is the team you guys saw, in your market last night, the LA Kings just keep winning, and uh, this <laughs> the Pacific Division looks like almost looks like it's upside down in many respects. Yeah, um, Jonathan, when it comes to the LA Kings, what has Philip Deneau meant 
to that team right now? How has he transformed that team, especially pairing him down the middle with a guy like Andre Kopitar? Well, I, you know, I think definitely early on it, it, it elevated the play of Andre Kopitar offensively, but it's also really helped a guy like Alex Iafalo, who, you know, I think he's now got a seven-game point streak. He's got 14 points during this streak, and this is the um, I think this is the first non-shootout game that the Kings won that he didn't have a part in the game-winning goal. Uh, he had a goal tonight, uh, but you know, this is a team, and you know, you guys saw it last night there. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely surprised that they're now 7-5-0. and I think ultimately, you know, they, they were better than the team that started 1-5-1. and uh, But they just don't get outworked. And, uh, you know, they got great goaltending last night. They got really good goaltending again tonight. Uh, so it, it's been, uh, I mean, it really has been 20 guys. It, it's so cliche, but, I, you know, really the sum of the parts is better than any one player on this team. So, Jonathan, you mentioned the Pacific Division looking, you know, I think you said in many respects looks like it's upside down, which I think is fair, right? It's a bit, it's been a bit of a strange season out west to start this year. And it's still, again, we've said this a lot tonight, but still a lot of hockey left to be played. So I, I expect things to normalize somewhat. But are, is there one team in the Pacific Division you expect to maintain their pace or at least something anywhere near to that uh, going forward to the rest of the season? Well, I, I expect Edmonton to maintain it. I mean, I just, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, the goaltending situation, at least for now, seems to be going in, in the right direction. You know, tonight was a, a real sloppy game for them. But, you know, I, and, and I think, you know, you can't underestimate what Daryl Sutter can do. You know, albeit I think Daryl's best probably, after, you, know, you know, for the first two years. But, you know, here he's got his – he's able to sink his hands and his teeth into this team for, you know, to start the year. And uh, he's really changed the way this team has played. And he's, he's moved guys around in the, in the roster. And most notably, you know, a guy like Sean Monaghan, who, you know, has gone from being the first-line center to the fourth-line center. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not – I don't want to slight Mark Giordano, but I, I really think this is a better team on the ice without Giordano because, uh, you know, he, to me, was, it was more – you know, we watched him play last year – He's really a third-pairing guy, and I think you know it's it's given an opportunity to other players on this roster, notably a guy like Oliver Shillington. Jonathan, is Andrew Mangiapane one of the most underrated players in the NHL? Well, uh, I think that look, we're all surprised. I mean, you know, it was one thing to do it at the World Hockey Championships; it's another thing to you know, to do it at the NHL level, um, you know, and, and what he's still, I think he's still putting up those Cy Young numbers. Uh, uh, most underrated, uh, he may be up there, but, uh, you know, I think that it, it's, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily underrated. He's, he's now been given an opportunity that he wasn't given before. And so let, let's see, you know, let, let's, let's not go too crazy. We're just, you know, it's just November 9th <laughs> right now. Um, but look, he is he has been given an opportunity and he has seized it and and hey that that's okay. what you want to be able to do well well all right let let's do this then uh, who's had a better start to the season Jacob Markstrom in Calgary or Freddie Anderson in Carolina well Jacob Markstrom's got four shutouts so that's uh, that's that's pretty good uh, I, I'd have to say Jacob Markstrom but you know uh, Freddie is uh, is a close runner up and. And even though he only had to face only, what, 18 shots tonight, uh, he had to face eight, a lot. I, I'd say like, you know, 17 of them were really good. Uh, yeah, he's been outstanding. 
there's no question. But, yeah, look, Markstrom, Markstrom's been their best player on a lot of nights. And I don't know if Freddie has had to be, but he, you know, he, he's been really good. But four yeah. shutouts? How, how can you go against four shutouts? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, in that case, then, Jonathan, is is Markstrom right now, would he be your presumptive? I mean, again, we're, we're only, what, the beginning of November here, but... Uh, right now, super early Vesna talk. Would we would we be betting on uh, Markstrom, or do you think you'd look somewhere else? No, I, I don't think. I don't know why you would look somewhere else right now. But there there are a lot of guys you know that are making their case. Like I'll tell you, if Thatcher Demko was playing for another team, you know he may be in that conversation. He's been he has been Vancouver's best player. Just doesn't get enough support. Um, so uh, you know I would put Demko in the conversation. Uh, you know. There are a lot of guys, and you know, Shesterkin has has had some really, really good games this year for the Rangers, and you guys saw it, you know, firsthand in Toronto. Uh, but right now, yeah, Markstrom won for sure. Jonathan Davis from Sirius XM NHL Radio. He's the host of Ice Cap. Joining us here on Sportsnet tonight, George Russick, Show Ali, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Jonathan, we took a couple callers. We had Ian Tullock on earlier to talk some Maple Leaf. Just wanted to get your thoughts on our question we posed to our listeners. What do you think is a more pressing need for Kyle Dubas to address? Is it to go out there and acquire another piece on the blue line, or is it potentially bottom six scoring because those issues continue to rear their ugly heads here in Toronto? I think those are both fair comments, but I think that the, the problem for me is that, yes, the core, the core four has the last 14 goals for the Maple Leafs, but I don't know about you guys, just from where I've been watching these games, you know, I look back at the Detroit game, the Chicago game, uh, even last night. Like, I, I just don't – I see a bunch of guys that like to play hockey. I just don't see enough of those – that core four that love to play hockey. And I just think they need to be, they, they don't, I don't know. I, I expected a lot more. So yeah, there are problems, you know, you, yes, you could address the blue line. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. You, you can try the bottom six. I, I just think that like the, the, whether it's Austin Matthews or John Tavares, I would just like to see them try to carry this team on their backs. Like Connor McDavid does in Edmonton. And, and I just don't see that from any one of these four guys, as talented as they are, I just think they rely more on their skill than really raising their level of play. Yeah, you don't see the, the top four do it, I guess, as consistently. That's something we were talking about in the first bit of the show, that you know, if the top four is not going, the rest of this team probably isn't going to be winning you uh, too many games here. Uh, Jonathan, when it comes to, we were kind of talking about goaltending just a, a couple minutes ago, and of course, Jack Campbell is is a, a highly discussed player here in the city of Toronto, right? I mean, certainly former uh, Los Angeles King. Uh, he saw his former team last night, and Campbell, you know, he he had hung out to dry a couple times on some of those goals. He certainly didn't play his best game by any means, but I, I do you think it's fair that from what you've seen of the Leafs so far that perhaps the, the single MVP of this young season for the Toronto Maple Leafs might very well be Jack Campbell. Yeah, I mean, let's give him a pass on last night. Uh, that you know, yes, he he has been their best player, and it's you know, let, let, let's and he's going to be tested. Uh, although I, you know, I think the one thing that, that does work in Jack Campbell's favor, at least the rest of this month, is I believe there's only one set of back to backs coming up. Uh, uh, in, in the month of November. So he's going to get a chance to rest, and he's going to need it because they're going to lean heavily on him. But he's answered really every question for this team. And what, last night I think was, what, his first home loss in, what, 15 games? 
uh, hey, that, that, that's pretty darn good. Here's a question I'd like to ask you guys about the goaltending situation in Toronto. You've got that back-to-back coming up with Buffalo and Calgary. Wouldn't you rather start Jack Campbell in the game that you, you know you can win or you really have like an 80% chance or 90% chance in winning as opposed to the game Friday night when it's a coin flip? Like, I'd go with the yeah. backup that night. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why teams do that, right, um, Jonathan? I think that's a great point. I think we see that a lot in the NHL, where they tend to play their better goalie at home, which makes no sense to me. Put your better goaltender on the road or the game you think you can win instead of the more difficult opponent. I I just don't understand that rationale of thinking. Do you, show? No, I I think that is is a good point, right? how How many times have we talked about that? Uh, when when McElhaney was here, right in the playoffs with with Freddie and McElhaney, and and you know they they didn't end up or, or going into the playoffs. Pardon me, and and you know what they it didn't end up panning out on either game instead of at least getting one one. I, I actually I don't mind that, but and, and like Jonathan said, there's only one I believe coming up this coming weekend. So uh, I mean, if, if the answer is the the other guy is what Wool, I guess is it right now unless something changes, George. I guess that's the other guy who's going to be in net and. I mean, I don't know how. I don't want to like just you know crap on the game before it even happens. But if he's in mm-hmm. net, and I don't know, I don't know what the chances are. The, they must decrease very sharply if he's the guy in net as opposed to Campbell. Yeah, and Buffalo yeah. also is a back-to-back guys on uh, Friday, Saturday. They got Edmonton and then Toronto. I don't know. I, I just like to me, it, 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 it just makes more sense go with, go with your better guy against the weaker team. Uh, Jonathan, I have to ask you about the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, they lost again tonight in overtime to the Los Angeles Kings. And we saw Carey Price uh, with a very uh, emotional, straight-from-the-heart statement on Instagram about his recovery and how he's doing a lot better and took control of his mental health well-being, although we don't know when he'll be back on the ice, trying to help the Habs win games. I just wanted to ask you, what what is the future of the general manager here. You're fresh off uh, a Stanley Cup Finals appearance that nobody saw coming. He's made some really shrewd moves, but has also made some bad moves, and their inability to develop their young talent from within and their drafting history hasn't been great lately. What do you think the, 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 the chances of Mark Bergevin getting extended in Montreal, or is this finally it for Jeff Molson that he has to turn the page and move on? Well, I, I think it's just as much really a decision of Mark Bergevin. I, I think that uh, I think it's time for him to move on. Not, I just think that emotionally, I, I think that you know he, he's done. Uh, it's a it's a it's a rough grind. I mean, you guys know what it's like to to be the GM or a coach or a player in Montreal, and uh, I, I think that he would be you know much happier uh, you know if, if he was to resume GM duty somewhere else just in a market where there's far less pressure. But you're right. Look, they, they, you know, he's hit, he's probably about 50-50 on hits and misses. And, yeah, they drafted, they, they've made some bad draft decisions, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, Kotkaniemi. Uh, you know, they had an opportunity to take Quinn Hughes and, and Bergeron was being urged and, and passed on it. They could have taken Matthew Kachuk. And so, uh, they no, they haven't drafted very well. Uh, but, uh, so I, I don't I don't think it's necessarily a matter of Jeff Molson wanting to cut ties. I, I I don't know what's going on, but it wouldn't surprise me, um, you know, if there is a succession plan that's being worked out. The only thing is, is that the assistant GM in Montreal, who's Scott Mellenby, he's not going to be the GM. Um, he won't be the next GM because he doesn't speak French. And 
I don't know if you guys were aware of this. Like, so, you know, most assistant, really every assistant GM, except in Montreal, is the GM of the AHL team. Except in Montreal, by title, Mark Bergevin is the GM of the Laval Rocket because Scott Mellenby doesn't speak French. And, I, I'm, t- and, I, and I, I'm pretty sure that Scott Mellenby is the guy that's going to the games and, and watching that team and dealing with that team. But it's a really, you know, so you've got to find yourself a French-speaking GM for the Canadians, and that's really going to, you know, it just narrows the search. Uh, I know who that could be, Jonathan. His his jersey's in the rafters. And I don't know if it'll be a good move, Jonathan, but if Patrick (laughs) Waugh took over in that organization, man, could that get interesting. Yes, it sure could. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. That, I don't know uh, if it's a good would, move, but man, it'd be entertaining. Right. Well, right, and and we all, you know, hey, look, it would be great theater, and we all love great theater, regardless of of, of how it ends. Absolutely, John. It could, it could be host. like a Sopranos, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely could be like who's Christopher and all of that. Uh, spoiler alert: uh, Jonathan Davis, host of uh, Ice Cap on Sirius XM NHL Radio. Jonathan, great stuff. Thanks for this. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Yeah, uh, Patrick Waugh came to the Habs show. Oh my goodness! Would you, as a as the Habs fan here at the station, what would you would you be yeah. in support? Well, I'm of this? not the only one, but well, it, whatever. True. true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'd like it. Uh, he. Oh boy, uh, it'd be interesting. And uh, the problem with Montreal, and I've talked about this for years, is there just lack of developing young players. Yeah. And the ones they do draft, it's seemingly they never pan out. And the players they do draft, if they do trade them away, they seemingly have a better career somewhere else. I will take this take to my grave. Miguel Sergachev never would have turned into Miguel Sergachev uh, if he played for Montreal. Yeah, that's fair. You're probably right. He honestly. was insulated in Tampa. Yeah, yeah. He played with some very good players. He played with Hedman. He learned how to play the position. I just don't know because he would have had a greater role here in Montreal than he would have in Tampa. It's just he was insulated. And he's just one of those instances where, yeah, Jonathan Drew in that trade, again, the Habs lost that trade. I don't even care what Drew does the rest of the season. The Habs have clearly lost that trade. But he's also made great trades like the Max Domi for Josh Anderson deal. My goodness. That's an absolute steal. Josh Anderson's one of the best power forwards in all the NHL. A guy who's that big, who skates that fast, and is physical. Those guys are very hard to find in today's NHL. I just it. There's a bigger problem here within the Habs. It's not just Mark Bergevin. It's from top to bottom. It's pro scouting. It's amateur scouting. It's, it's how they draft and develop. If I'm Jeff Molson, I do an entire cleaning of everything in that entire organization show, including Trevor Timmons, God bless him, who has been there so long making these decisions on draft day. Well, I think you, you kind of have to also, not just because of their their place in the standings this season, but you look elsewhere around the Atlantic, and you and I have spoken at length about the Florida Panthers, and they're at the top of the Atlantic right now. But Tampa Bay is Tampa Bay. It is what it is there. But Detroit and Ottawa, I mean, they're, they may not make the playoffs this year, George, but I feel like the future is pretty bright for those teams because of Iserman and because of the young stars in Ottawa, for example. And it doesn't really feel like the, 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 the near short-term future, even the long-term future for for a team like Montreal is quite on the same level as Ottawa and Detroit, despite the the relatively similar place in the standings, let's say, between Ottawa and Montreal. Yeah, no question. Um, okay, so uh, woke up this morning show, 
and uh, check Twitter to see if there was anything new with Odell Beckham Jr. Did okay. he get claimed? What's going on in the sporting world? As I usually do when I wake up, much like I'm sure you do to see what's going on because this is the position we do. This is what we do for a living. And all of a sudden, uh, my mansions just blow up. So late last night, oh, I did uh, see this. <laughs> a, a tweet I sent six and a half years ago was retweeted by some dude I've never heard of um, about how I said that, um, look out, Lee fans, the Sabres will have Sam Reinhardt and either Jack Eichel or Connor McDavid down the middle for the next 10 to 15 years. That sucks for Lee fans. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what I wrote. I didn't even remember writing that tweet. It was six and a half years ago. And then all of a sudden I get all these like, uh, my, my mansion is just blowing up. Oh, this didn't age well. I sent it six and a half years ago. And not only is that the, the worst part of it all, like, I don't care. I own all my bad takes. It was a bad take. I've said Roger Federer was never going to win another tennis major. He ended up winning three. I said the Phil Kessel trade to Pittsburgh was a terrible one for the Penguins. They won two cups. I've had horrendous takes that have blown up in my face, which I own every single one of them. I didn't even remember writing this tweet. And then it comes out and all these like, oh, this and that, this and that. It's like, okay, fine. It was a bad take. I don't mind owning bad takes. It's just who is leafing through social media looking for McDavid or Eichel stuff from six and a half years ago? What loser is doing that? <laughs> yeah. Or if you're looking at my timeline, what it was it exciting about my timeline? I barely tweet anything. If somebody searched six and a half years worth of tweets through my timeline, maybe it's time to re-examine your own life because all those scumbags on social media who look through people's years and years and years of tweets, you're just as bad. You're part of the problem. I was shocked when I saw this. I actually deleted the tweet, and I never delete any of my tweet show because I don't care. But this was the fact, like, who looks at something from six and a half years ago? I, I, I'm, I'm on the radio. I am, I'm paid to have opinions. I have opinions. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. It's part of the gig. And that's part of the gig that you take some of the backlash from them. That's fine. I stand by everything. But something I wrote six and a half years ago that I had no idea about and somebody dug it up and I'm getting all this, like, traction on it, it's just dumb. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I actually did see this particular person retweet that tweet. And I thought to myself, I, it, my instant reaction was, why in God's name is George tweeting about Sam Reinhardt in relation to, to Connor McDavid? And then I had to go, I clicked on it and it said 2015 was the date. And I thought to myself, I, my, my, my next thought was someone, like in order to find this tweet, like you said, you don't tweet all that often, but in order to find this tweet, you would have yeah. had to type in your actual Twitter name, Twitter, Twitter handle into like the Twitter advanced search, type in McDavid, type in Eichel and type in Reinhardt to get that very, unique tweet that has all three of these players i was kind of like what 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 purpose does this serve other than to dogpile in a tweet from six years ago i don't know that's that i gotta say that did actually rub me the wrong way not just because you and i are friends and you and i work at the same place like not just because of that but just that's the worst aspect of social media yeah. bar none show show i was old takes exposed with my one of my phil kessel tweets right where even he goes even the added snark I find that as a badge of honor that they would actually retweet me. Who am I? I'm just a, I'm a nobody on Toronto radio. 
that was kind of funny. It didn't even offend me. I actually thought it was kind of funny because I'm like, that's cool that that guy who, by the way, you say what you will, that's kind of that's a sad existence when you're just <laughs> spending your days just right. digging up old tweets over and over again. That That's another conversation. I kind of found that as a badge of honor because that's like the number one old like old Twitter account, whatever. But for somebody to six and a half years ago on a tweet, I don't even remember writing. I don't even know really what the point is. Just to what remind you that Eichel and, and then and this person good, waited for Eichel to get traded. Yeah, weird. It's weird. It's weird. Then like all these people were like, "Oh, good take." This aged well. Well, of course it didn't. It was from six and a half years ago. <laughs> yeah, come on. Like, come on. Who? Oh my god. I mean, there's not a person on earth who could have guessed that the Jack Eichel Buffalo relationship would have deteriorated quite yeah. to this exact manner. It's like truly and, wild. And you know what it is too? It's not like I wrote Eichel is going to be great in Buffalo. The tweet also said McDavid or Eichel. Yeah, yeah. So what if Buffalo would have got McDavid? Who knows, yeah, who knows what that would have meant? And I just wrote out, that's going to suck for Leaf fans if they get McDavid. That was essentially the crux of the entire text, uh, the entire tweet. And for somebody to retweet something from how did you find it? I didn't even know I wrote it, and I never delete anything. Anyway, reason whatever, million something that I hate social media. Exactly. And I specifically hate Twitter, too. Because as Mike Davis says, as he tweeted the running back from the Falcons this week, it ain't real life. It absolutely is not real life. Do you? Uh, Good do you God. Use, do you use TikTok? No. Oh, okay. I'm not even on TikTok. I didn't even download the app. <laughs> I'm not even on Instagram. Really? Yeah. It's just, it's all poison show. Yeah. It's all poison. It's a social media. As much as I am addicted to it, I freely admit it. It's also a, it's the most especially Instagram, the most curated look into a person's life. It's not, it's none of it's real. None of it's Twitter's not real. Yeah. Look at all the virtue signaling that goes on on Twitter on a daily basis from people who pretend like they're all high and mighty and really do nothing for humanity outside of tweet that they're all high and mighty. Yeah. I know people in this business who pretend like they're the beacon of morality and they're bad people to actually deal with people who actually know who they are about. And I laugh when they virtue signal all their tweets, how they're how they're up against everything and everything is on the right path. When actually, when you've actually dealt or talked with them, they're actually not good people. Anyway, I'm done. I'm done soapboxing. Okay. Usually, I don't complain about Twitter because I don't care because I have a bad. You know me, show. Yeah. I own my bad takes. True. But from six and a half years ago, what the hell? All right. Derek Clawson, NFL analyst, got to talk about the Buffalo Bills. Show because there's some panic down in the below right now on the Bills. He's an NFL analyst, football outsiders. We'll ask him, and the Cardinals are the best team in football, right? And I don't think there's any question. We'll talk about that, and we'll talk about that whole Cassius Marsh thing that happened on Monday Night Football last night. It's straight ahead. Sportsnet tonight, George and Joe, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Nights ranked in reverse order. Date night, medieval night, and number one, Sportsnet Tonight. Tonight on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Sportsnet Tonight. Sportsnet, Bob Nutty, the fan. George Russell, Show Ali here for another hour. Sing it, show. Oh, yeah. Share. Oh, Sing yeah. it. 
Is this the, do you think these kinds of songs we got we got we had a living on this was living on a prayer we had journey in the previous segment do you think those yep. are like the most sung along to songs out there well sweet caroline's got to oh, be yeah. right up there too right probably up there yeah and you know what it makes me mad when i hear sweet caroline and other sporting events except for fenway park okay like that's their thing i heard it at an argos game a couple weeks ago i went to bmo field they played it like a couple times <laughs> that's a- Listen, that's awesome that you actually went to an Arcos game. Yeah. Good for you. It was, I got to say, it was so cold and rainy. Guys were like open, wide open down the field on both teams, right through their fingertips. Boy, that was a, that was a mess, but they still won. So thank God for that. <laughs> um, for people who like trash the CFL, and I try not to trash the CFL. Sometimes it's really hard for me not to. But uh, I've been on the sidelines when we used to actually have Argos radio games right. show. I did the... I did the visiting side before, mm-hmm. and when you're down there on the sideline, those guys are fast and they're big. Yeah, like it's yeah, it's it gets real down there on the CFL sideline, like because all those guys are is just a half step slower than the NFL. That's sure. why they're not in the NFL. Yeah, that's all it is. That's all it is. Uh, it was an interesting week nine. My God, some of the upsets in the NFL were just shocking. Derek Lawson, NFL analyst for Football Outsiders, joins us. Derek, good evening. How are you? Uh, I'm doing too bad. How are you? We're good. Uh, a lot of listeners in this area are still licking their wounds on that Bills 9-6 loss to the Jags in Jacksonville. Uh, from what you've seen, what is the biggest issue on the Buffalo Bills right now? I mean, the offense just isn't complete in any sense of the word. I mean, you know, we talk about the Chiefs consistently about how they can't really run the ball and teams are getting into a bunch of too high shells against them and running a lot of cover two and that sort of thing. We're seeing a lot of that with the Bills, and I think their wide receiver room is a little bit more, you know, complete top to bottom than the Chiefs is right now, and that helps them a little bit. But, like, the offensive line isn't playing very well, and they don't really do anything to tie their run game to their pass game. Um, they'll just like randomly get under center, but then not do enough like play action off of it. Like it just doesn't seem like any of what the offense does is connected. Um, and it seems a lot of like when they run, it's not to set anything up or to try to actually, you know, wear the opponent down or anything. It's literally for the sake of like the coaches feel like, Oh, well, I guess we should probably run the ball 15 times a game because we have to. And that's it. Like that's the extent of their run game. It's not like they're trying to accomplish anything. And I think, even if we think that, you know, running is not as valuable in the NFL as passing, I think a very simple way to put it is just like it's better when your offense can do more things. And Buffalo's offense just can't do very many things right now. They can only run 11 personnel and pass the ball at a pure drop back. And even if they're good at that, they're not good at anything else, and you're just not going to have a complete offense that way. Um, I know the offensive line is an issue uh, with uh, the Bills, but when you look at them, they're top 12 in both pass and run block win rate. I just, I can't figure it out. Uh, They're getting the time to potentially make these plays, but it's just as simple as uh, we're seeing the same model there uh, as as the Kansas City Chiefs, that team are just daring the Buffalo Bills to run the football and do those short little intermediate passes. That isn't what we saw last year with explosive plays to Stephon Diggs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely part of that. I also 
am not sure how much I, I trust run block and pass block. Winry, I think run block. Ooh, okay, Winry okay, hold on. This is great because you're a football <laughs> outsiders guy, and that's an ESPN stat, and a lot of people like to use that stat. So why why aren't you a believer in pass or win block, uh, pass or run block win rate? And explain um, for people who don't know. It's essentially you get two and a half seconds to pass the ball or run the ball before uh, pressure comes. That's what the offensive line is doing. Yeah, pretty much. And it's all based off of, like, um, the, the chips and, and players' pads and stuff. And, like, for pass rush room win rate, I actually think it's – that one's not – I think that one's probably close. Oh, no, did we lose him? Sorry. Did we? You just cut out there for a second there. If you just want to repeat that oh. about your uh, – pa- okay, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, so, like, pass rush win rate, I think I'm closer to that being okay and functional, especially for – um, edge rushers, um, because you know it's all based on the chips and their shoulder pads. I think so. If they can turn the corner at a certain point, that probably makes more sense to be like a functional thing. But to me, like run blocking and and run defense is a lot more about like um, it's a lot more about like defenders using their eyes and like playing one gap and being able to play back to another. So like I don't think penetrating up the field or you know getting run blockers to penetrate up the field and get movement is like. I don't know. I think it's just not a perfect gauge of what it means to um, to run block particularly well, um, because I think it just I, I don't know. I don't think it measures it correctly. Um, but again, I think for pass block, pass block win rate is probably fine. Run block, I think it's it's just things are just too muddy. So Derek, we were talking a little bit about the Buffalo Bills, and I guess prior to this past weekend, I probably would have said the Bills were the best team in the AFC at least, and uh, after Monday night, uh, Titans-Rams, that was, I mean, that was a, uh, or pardon me, uh, Sunday night, Titans-Rams. Titans are now 7-2. and two. They've beaten teams like the Bills, the Chiefs. They just, you know, handily beat the Rams without Derrick Henry. Are the Titans the best team in the AFC, do you? Uh, I mean, I do think that on their best day, Bills are probably better, but I think to my earlier point, they're just not as complete if they're particularly on offense right now, whereas it feels like this Titans team is a little bit more complete. Maybe that falls apart now that um, Derrick Henry is not in the mix. And, you know, I think last night or last Sunday they did get a little bit fortunate that Matt Stafford had his most absurd game of the year. And we knew one or two of these were going to happen, even though he's playing well, and it just kind of happened to be against the Titans that day. Um, but I just think that Ryan Tannehill is generally playing well this season. Their receivers are playing well when those guys are healthy. Um, the offensive line has been solid when they're, when they're healthy. Um, and I think the thing that's impressed me most is like their defensive front is playing out of their mind. Um, Simmons is one of the best defensive linemen in the league right now. Danico Autry is really underrated. He's been a, doing a great job pushing the pocket, particularly for them. Harold Landry is great off the edge. Um, they're getting good play from their linebackers like David Long, who, who was like a mid-round or late-round pick a couple years ago, has just been playing phenomenal this year. So their front is really stepping up, and I think making up for a secondary that doesn't have a whole lot of talent right now outside of Kevin Byard, which, granted, he is obviously amazing. You know, that pick he had on Stafford was pretty incredible. Um, Derek, is, is an issue with the Rams, and I, I've watched two of their losses uh, rather closely. Obviously, we all watched that Sunday nighter against the Titans, who I think we can all agree are a physical football team, and what the Cardinals did to them 
on that game in Los Angeles. It was one of the primetime games on Sunday afternoon where they went in there and they imposed their will, especially with James Conner in pounding the football. Is that something that the, the Rams have a difficulty with? Not only because we know the Cardinals can get to the quarterback, but teams that can pound the ball with their running back, the Rams just struggle against those types of matchups. Uh, a little bit. I think that run defense unit is definitely not as good as it was last year. Um, I think part of their success last year was like, you know, Michael Brockers was playing really well. He's not there anymore. Um, John Johnson was one of the best run defending safeties in the league. He is obviously not there anymore. Um, they had corners like Troy Hill who were a little bit better at defending the run. So they kind of just lost, you know, obviously Aaron Donald is there, still there. Jalen Ramsey is still there, but they lost a couple of the pieces that were doing a really good job of gluing the run defense together and now I think they're a little bit more inconsistent because they do still play a decent amount of those two high cells where it's you know you have to get late guys that are that are fitting down from from safety positions to help out the run and I think they're just not quite as good at that this year the defensive line is not quite as good at you know giving those guys time to do that so I think that's part of the problem but um, to me it almost seems more like the the issue with the Rams is the way that their interior line plays against like particularly great defensive lines. Um, and I think we saw that against the Titans. And I think to your point against the Cardinals, we kind of saw that when their defensive line was a little bit healthier. So Derek, if we, if we look at some of the other top teams in the NFC, one team that I, I feel like we've talked a decent amount about everyone across, you know, NFL media and so on have been the Dallas Cowboys and for good reason, right? Dak Prescott, even though he's had, he had some injury issues with the foot that, that certainly he had a big injury with last year. Uh, he's, he's looked okay this year, if not very good. Uh, CD Lamb and Amari Cooper, Ezekiel Elliott, all having pretty good years as well. But then of course they uh, get blanked for three quarters by the Denver Broncos in Dallas, I believe. I just, what what went wrong for, for Dallas in that loss to the Broncos this past weekend? The answer to me is, is unfortunately pretty boring. Uh, I think, I do think part of what happened is that, you know, Denver's offense had a particularly good matchup in the sense that Denver's, or Dallas's defense, excuse me, is really, really volatile and Denver's take a mile is a pretty smart quarterback like that when he gets a decent amount of protection and I think after the first quarter in particular Denver did a really good job of blocking those guys up giving Teddy time to do that Um, and then obviously they ran the ball incredibly well and kind of choked the clock out from Dallas in that sense and then on the other end with Dallas's offense you know that coming off of the injury it seemed like there were going to be problems but like if you watch him like he's managing the pocket just fine he's running around just fine he looks mostly like himself until he throws the ball and he's just not accurate. And that's just generally not something we've come to expect from Dak Prescott. He's generally one of the more accurate quarterbacks in the league, but for whatever reason, he just wasn't hitting him on that day. And I think I'm probably pretty, you know, I think Dallas is going to be fine in the long term because I think that was such a fluky performance from Dak in particular that that's just not going to happen down the stretch of the season. And I think, you know, he's going to be able to get himself back to normal. Um, Derek, when it comes to the Cowboys, we know that they've done a great great job of turning over the football, but that's not sustainable. They're still giving up explosive plays defensively. Is that ultimately what's going to be their undoing as the season rolls along here? I mean, probably. I mean, because like you said, it's just something that's pretty hard to sustain, and they've obviously they, – they do do a good job in the sense of like, 
the way to create turnovers is to be constantly aggressive. Their guys are very willing to jump routes, and they're pretty smart about. Um, they're generally pretty smart about doing that, and then they generate a lot of pressure. They can do it with, you know, just general four-man rushes. And then Dan Quinn has actually, I think, done a fantastic job of scheming up pressure. So they do put offenses in a position to where they might be more uh, prone to turning the ball over. But again, to your point, like you're, you're banking on something that is entirely unsustainable, and it's totally possible that uh, over the backstretch of this year, they have seven or eight games where they just aren't getting those turnovers. And then you're only getting those explosive plays against them, which those are a lot more um, those are a lot more sustainable because that's more of just like a structural issue rather than you know banking on a couple of big, making a couple of big plays. So Derek, one team that and I think you and I have spoken about this before, just not even just this past year, this past season, but even seasons past about the Cleveland Browns and whether or not Baker Mayfield is the answer. And certainly Baker and and the Browns as a whole, I guess, have dealt with a lot of injuries. Um, now the news coming, I believe it was earlier today that, you know, Nick Chubb and Demetric Felton tested positive for COVID. They're both vaccinated, so we'll see what their status is uh, for their game against the Patriots on Sunday, this coming Sunday. But you just when you look back to their win, their massive win over the, the division rival Cincinnati Bengals and Joe Burrow, they've been, they, they really aggressively took away Jamar Chase and, you know, didn't really let them get anything going. They had the 100-yard hundred yard pick six from Denzel Ward. I just, how, how do you see the rest of this season going for the Browns if Baker continues to be just I guess okay he certainly played very well on Sunday but just I, I guess I just I'm not sure I go back and forth on what I think the ceiling is for Baker Mayfield and if he can be the guy to elevate this offense to the next level long term I'm not too too excited about Baker Mayfield I think everything about the Browns situation right now um, both just in terms of the way that they've been on the run game with the offense. Um, the offensive line is incredible right now. Um, and then the defense coming together. It feels, you know, it's not one for one, but it feels a lot like what happened in L.A. with Jared Goff. And I think it's entirely possible that once Baker Mayfield gets paid, some of these other guys start to have to go. Things could fall apart in, in similar fashion. Um, maybe not as badly as it did for Goff in some ways, but I think that would kind of be my concern. But I think through the context of this year with the current roster that they have, to your point, if Baker can be just fine, I think the way that the defense is coming together is really impressive. We obviously knew that front seven was crazy. Miles um, Garrett is somehow even better than he used to be, which doesn't really make any sense because he was already maybe the best offensive end in the league. Um, Jadavian Clowney has been awesome. Um, they're getting production out of Tack McKinley. Like Their defensive tackles are playing well. Um, so the front is awesome, but the, the good part now over the past few weeks especially is the young secondary is really coming together. We knew Denzel Ward was great. They signed John Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But some of these other young corners that they've got have really stepped up. Greg Newsom in particular, you know, we've seen him. Um, he had a couple reps against Pittsburgh where he was up against Pat Fryermuth and, like, and locked him down. Like The fact that he can line up against the tight end and do that and then so, against some of the receivers that he did against the Bengals, I mean, it seems like they got a really good one with him. So I think the way the defense is coming together, this should continue to be one of the better teams in the AFC unless Baker just completely you know, explodes, which this year I don't think is going to happen. Derek Lawson from Football Outsiders joining us here on Sportsnet tonight, Georgian Show, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Um, Derek, are you finally on the on the Arizona Cardinals, the best team in football train, or they still need to prove more to you? Because that was a damn impressive win Sunday in San Francisco. 
I mean, there is something that still feels odd about the Cardinals, and I, I honestly can't place it. I don't know if it's just... Because it's the Cardinals. It's a mental block that we all have. That's what it is, Derek. It's true. Yeah, it's the, it's the old stench of, like, previous Cardinals teams. It's the fact yeah. that Cliff Kingsbury still feels like a weird head coach. Um, I, like, I don't know. There is just something that feels off about them, but I think if they can continue, like, they just keep stringing out these really impressive wins, you know, it's, I think, you know, for the most part, they're not really squeaking by teams. They've had, they've had a lot of impressive wins, you know, they beat the Rams handily, um, this 49ers team that frankly, even though despite their record, they've been playing a lot better recently. Um, so the fact that they beat them the way that they did with Colt McCoy quarterback is, is just kind of ridiculous. So I think the part of this operation that I'm really starting to buy in on is Cliff Kingsbury as a play caller. I still do think there is a little bit of, you know, Kyler Murray just go do something to the offense. But I, I do think that um, part of that is he's just kind of recognized how talented this wide receiver group is and isn't trying to do anything too, too fancy and kind of just letting these guys, letting these guys go. And I think especially when they fully get Rodney Hudson, like fully back and fully hundred percent, I think this operation is going to be, it's just going to continue to be lights out. So Derek, I do want to ask you, uh, certainly we, we talked about the Browns already. They looked a lot like a lot better offense, uh, a much better offense, pardon me, than they had with, with uh, Odell Beckham Jr. And he's now a free agent. He, no one claimed him on waivers. He's a free agent for the first time, I believe, in his career. Um, I know there have been a lot, of, a lot of reports tying him to different teams. And one of the things that his, his camp came out and said is that he wants to play with a star quarterback. If you wanted to rub the crystal ball for us, Derek, who does, who does uh, OBJ end up playing for uh, maybe as soon as tomorrow? I mean, the Packers probably may. I mean, it seems like the Packers were where he wanted to play. And I think that that probably makes the most sense. I mean, they're obviously a contender. They are one of the better teams in the NFC. Obviously, Aaron Rodgers is playing incredible football, and they really, really need wide receiver help. And I think what the extra layer to this that really I think is good for Green Bay is we've seen Green Bay be a lot more willing to play Devontae Adams from the slot. And I think that's really good if you're bringing in a guy like OBJ, who I think is a lot more comfortable outside. So you can kind of kick Adams in inside a little bit if you get the three receiver sets, and that's where you feel like you need to go. So... I would like to see him there. I think that that's probably the you know top contender team that needs him the most. Other than that, I mean, I guess it would be cool to see the Patriots get a wide receiver who could separate. I think Mac Jones would probably like that. Derek, how tough is it to, to be a believer in the New England Patriots? Because all of a sudden, if you look at their division, they're only a, a one loss behind the Bills for top spot in that division. The defense looks good. Matthew Judon's been one of the best free agent signings in all the NFL. The defense looks really good. They're running the football effectively with Damian Harris. Where are you at with the Patriots as a legit contender in the AFC? I really, really like this Patriots team, actually. I think... They sort of have the inverse, you know, incompleteness on offense that the Bills do, whereas obviously the Bills are, they can drop back pass and get 30 yards at a time if they want to, um, you know, on occasion just because their quarterback can do that and they have the wide receiver talent. Patriots obviously can't do that because Mac Jones is not as much of a playmaker and they don't have the wide receiver talent, but the way that they can, that offense can just generate, you know, six, eight yard, 11, you know, yard gains just at a time consistently. Um, whether that's Mac Jones just getting through his reads effectively or checking down, or to your point, the running game is really coming together. I think especially these past three, four weeks, um, they're getting their guys healthier in the running back room, which I think is helping. And they've shuffled out around their offensive line a little bit in part because of, of some earlier injuries. And I think that's helping. So I really love the way that this offense is coming together. 
And I think the defense, I think people were a little bit too concerned earlier in the year. I think generally we see that these Belichick defenses can get better. We know how smart he is. And I think with some of the talent that they have, I think especially up front, like Judon is just playing out of his mind. Christian Barmore, the rookie, I mean, he does something every week that just looks crazy. I mean, he's going to be really good. So I think this team is really good. And I think if, if the chips fall the right way, like they could still completely win this division, I think. Which which would be absolutely stunning, uh, Derek. It Clawson, would be hilarious. It would be uh, it would be hilarious, Derek Lawson. And wait, wait, wait to make Bills fans uh, in our listening area uh, maybe have some nightmares and some cold sweats of another New England Patriots AFC East championship. Uh, thanks for this, Derek. Great stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. There he goes. Um, did you watch that Monday Nighter last night when everybody was complaining about the officiating? I did, yeah. I was, uh, you know, some sloppy football, some questionable calls. Yeah. I liked watching Justin Fields, yeah. but, uh, yes, I did watch. And he made some great throws yeah. at the end of that Boy. game, too. It felt it felt like watching Justin Fields last night that he, that he turned a corner. I just want to just talk about a couple things real quick about the officiating and specifically the Cassius Marsh uh, taunting penalty that just blew up over social media and everybody overreacting, much like they do because... It's the worst platform known to humankind. Um, are we? Why is nobody talking about show? Why did he feel the need? Nobody was talking about the the ninja kick he did after the sack. That's like his celebration, apparently, and he was he got up, activated off the practice squad, and this was his first action in the NFL this season. Nobody's talking about that. And then he was he was saying he literally said at post game that Tony Correnti was uh, purposely hip checked him. Why would a guy on the practice squad go up to Pittsburgh's punter and talk some stuff to him? Because you saw him facing him, and I'm sure Tony Correnti heard something. That's why the flag was thrown. Why is nobody talking about what is a practice player doing heading towards the punter on the other sideline and saying something to him when you're just a practice team player? How about make an incredible play to get your team off the field and run the hell off the field? It's okay to celebrate after the sack, but show... I don't know what he said, and I think maybe that's the reason why he got the flag. Well, especially after so many penalties in that game, why even take a chance, right? Like, I, I know... But did it, you notice that, too? Like, or, why is nobody talking about that? He walked towards the punter. Yeah. He did walk... To, he walked towards the sideline. He stared them down. And I think the, the only real, the only thing I really had an issue with, I don't, I don't think the hip check was really any, anything much of anything. I think it was just the way that the replay was showed seemed to show it a particular emphasis on that, but the replay didn't show what happened right before that, right? Which would have included a lot of the things we're talking about. But yeah, I just, I, I feel like, you, you know, the, the, length, the delay that Correnti did, you know, he took before he actually lifted the flag out of his pocket, I think is the only really thing I had any issue with. But uh, yeah. but yeah, that's that's really it. I mean, he still he still he made a great play, and there was no real reason to exacerbate it by going and and doing mm-hmm. all you know any kind of antics afterwards. And how awful was Robert Quinn, a veteran in the NFL, lining up in yeah. the an offside position Offsides, not yeah. once but twice? How does that even happen? Yeah, channeling the spirit of D Ford apparently. Like, I don't understand how that happens. But again, the Pittsburgh Steelers seemingly invincible, uh, invincible, that is, not invincible, <laughs> invincible, on Monday Night Football uh, win again, I believe was their 19th straight win on Monday Night Football in Pittsburgh, which is just a phenomenal uh, record. And now, who's your best team in the AFC North? In the AFC North, boy, I guess it's 
probably probably still the Bengals. Probably. I mean, everyone can have a the Bengals. A, it's, it's look. It's not. It's not Pittsburgh. It's definitely. They just not. got their ass kicked by the Browns. I mean, everyone can have bad games. It's, it's is it the Ravens? I don't know. They. Why look, am I yelling? They, I don't know. They look. They the Ravens pass defense. George might be one of the worst pass defenses. It sucks in the whole NFL. It's awful. But you can't. You can't stop the Ravens though. That's the problem. Yeah, Lamar their offense Jackson. is too damn explosive. Lamar Jackson can do some pretty nasty things. He probably uh, is. The be- to... he, he's the best quarterback, probably in the AFC North. I don't think there's any question that he is the best. Well, yeah. And by the way, that game against the Bengals and the uh, Browns. I just so you know, for full disclosure, I now watch football on four televisions simultaneously. Right. So I, I watch a ton of football. I watch all the four o'clocks. And I watch as much as the one o'clock as humanly possible that you can with four televisions. Uh, what I did see, Jamar Chase has the case of the drop seas again. That was an issue in preseason. But Joe Burrow threw him a couple of beautiful plays, which could have been touchdown passes, that he just flat out dropped. And if you want to be the offensive rookie of the year, if you want to be a guy who's considered one of the elite weapons on all the NFL, you got to make those catches, son. Still about half the season to go, so I, I have no doubt that Jamar Chase is going to have some just ridiculous, highlight-worthy plays for the rest of the season. But do you think, George, after the last two down games where defenses have gone out of their way to, to kind of games, you know, game script, plan them out of the game, I, I wonder if, if, if at least it's not worth having the conversation that Devonta Smith it might be neck and neck with him for Offensive Rookie of the Year. That That's... Very well. I think Najee Harris is sure, the sure. offensive yeah. rookie of the year right now. He's up there too. He's been he's been very good in Pittsburgh. And it's funny how the Steelers all of a sudden don't rely on Ben Roethlisberger throwing the football fifty times a game, short passes. Uh, funny how that works out for them now that they look a lot better. Big Big Ben's arm, George. If there's nothing else I took away from last night's game, his arm is toast. It's it's done so. Like he Big Big Ben is uh, not just on the back nine of his career. He's walking off the the green of the 18th hole to the clubhouse with a beer in his hand. Wow. Do you think his arm might physically tear away from his body when he tries to throw a deep to Chase Claypool? Oh my gosh. Like there's some there's some plays where he he throws it and I think to myself like he's got if the cameras were to pan back to him, it, I'm I would be <laughs> guaranteed he'd be like grimacing just you know winding up his shoulder cuz my goodness. Those that ball those, those balls do not travel very far. Yeah, but that defense looks good. It, they That's do. why I'm yeah, saying they're yeah. dangerous, right? TJ Watt. Great. Yeah, uh, Cam Hayward's having probably the best season of his career at 32, and J.J. Watt, I don't think there's any question, he's the best pass rusher in the NFL right now. Right now, he's the best pass rusher in the National Football League. That's a scary defense. The secondary's pretty good, anchored by Minka Fitzpatrick. All of a sudden, the Steelers do what they do. They win under Mike Tomlin, and I'm not saying that team's going to the Super Bowl, but I think they're better than what we thought they were. Definitely after the first, like, I mean, they want, they beat the Bills to, to open the season. And then a couple games in a row, they, it's kind of a little unimpressive, right? Look, kind of, kind of, things were a little strange. And then, of course, the Juju Smith Schuster stuff, he got injured and is done for the year. I think a lot of people were like, ah, okay, well, with uh, Big Ben's waning arm strength to be polite about it, uh, you know, could, could this be sustainable? Well, I guess the, the play of the defense coupled with just check the ball down to Najee Harris as much as humanly possible with the occasional deep shot to Deontay Johnson um, yeah. has been, has been the formula. I just I, and Pat Fryermuth has been pretty good too. Well, like I mean, a lot of people comparing him to uh, to Heath Miller. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but he looks pretty good. That's for sure. Yeah, he absolutely looks pretty good. Real quick too, uh, the Bills schedule. Like all of a sudden, you're like, uh, who have the Bills actually beat? Uh, they beat the Chiefs, which 
Is that Honestly, impressive? Isn't really. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not. Uh, they beat the Dolphins twice, who stink. Right? Like, I, they crushed the Texans, which is fine, but they also lost games to the Steelers, the Titans, and now the Jags. It's just that Bills schedule, and they, they should handle. I don't know how you can lay the Bills as big favorites this weekend against the Jets. I don't know how you can do that because I don't think you can. And I think I'll, I like the Jets plus the points this weekend. All right. Uh, if you missed J.P. Morosi, our pal from MLB Network and Fox Sports, he was a guest on uh, the Drive Time Show with Ben Ennis. We'll replay that interview straight ahead as we wrap up Sportsnet tonight. That's Show Ali. I'm George Russick. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Touching hands. Reaching out. Sportsnet tonight. Sportsnet, Bob Nighting, the fans, George Russell, Joe Lee here. One more segment to go with the program. If you missed, yeah. Do you know what this song is actually about? Uh, No, but I have a feeling you're going to tell me. Uh, It's super creepy. (laughs) Uh, He wrote this song when he saw Caroline Kennedy on a horse as like a 14-year-old on a magazine cover. Ugh, great. You know, hands touching hands. Right. Yeah. This is Neil Diamond, right? Yeah. It is yeah. Neil Diamond. Yeah, it's it's actually a really creepy song if you actually listen to the lyrics and know the genesis of it. Great. Good thing, good the, that the Boston Bruins uh, played all the time then. Boston Red Sox, yes. Yeah, right, the Red Sox. Screw the Red Sox. Uh, and what are the Blue Jays going to do, though? Because uh, it should be a busy offseason show. Um, our pal, my friend, your friend, uh, John Morosi of Fox Sports and MLB Network, joined the fan drive time with Ben Ennis. If you missed that interview, here it is right now on Sportsnet Tonight. Um, this is a, a, a weird GM meeting. So like I said, the, the, the specter of maybe no winter meetings, the, the impending labor stoppage. Um, I don't know how much work normally gets done as far as laying the groundwork for free agents at, at this thing in a normal year. But, but what is the, the sense that you get being there and, and maybe comparing it to just to some of the others that you've been at? Well, Ben, it's a great question. I would say it is day-to-day right now delightfully normal. I say that in the sense that we have not had these meetings since the fall of 2019. Of course, last year they were canceled. Uh, just to be back in the company of uh, our fellow journalists and the agents and the executives who make this game move from a business standpoint is is really uh, a blessing, candidly, uh, for me. And actually, I'll say this, MLB did a great job of choosing the site for these proceedings because they're at a place here in, in Southern California where there's a lot of outdoor meeting spaces. We're about to meet the GM shortly. That's going to be outside. So I, I think a, a lot of uh, thought being put into this from a health and safety standpoint, too, and, and you're right. There is the looming specter of what could or might not happen on, on December 1. Actually, just in the last five minutes before we came on the air, was speaking with one GM who, who said, really, it's, it's business as usual until dictated otherwise. I think we have all been given the reminder in the last year and a half about taking that day-to-day focus as much as it's uh, maybe a bit of a cliche from a sports standpoint. I think in life, we've all realized it's going through the pandemic to, a, to an extent. So uh, it seems to me... Ben, that the, the GMs and the agents are planning on a normal offseason and will then adjust if we all go on hiatus for December 1. Uh, they'll adjust at this point in time. But I, I do think we are not seeing any more or less movement than we typically see at a GM meetings in any other ordinary year. 
Um, the Blue Jays are a team, though, that's on the ascendance, uh, whether you believe that, you know, that's linear and that 91 wins this season means 95 in, in 2022. It's it's hard not to look at this roster and, and, and be excited about it. And I know usually free agents, they just take the, the, the highest dollar figure, but sometimes there can be tiebreakers. And there would, you know, Shai and Ben reported on sportsend.ca today that, that there was one age or one one player, and I don't know if it was his representative or the player himself who actually initiated a conversation with the Blue Jays, which probably wasn't happening when they were losing 95 games. Do you get a different sense around the, the Blue Jays as far as their pursuit of free agents this offseason? I, I do to an extent. I also think that it will be very challenging for them to keep both Ray and Simeon, just based on what I'm hearing now about price tags and interest in both of them. Uh, I think for the Jays, and I know Jays fans, it's hard for them to hear this, but they're going to have to do a lot of work to get themselves back to being where they were in 2021. We remember the, the data point, and it's worth repeating because it really tells you how good they were. They won one more game during the regular season than the eventual World Series champion did. They won one more game than the Braves did, and that tells you how good they were. Mm-hmm. And now you take off of that roster – Simeon and Ray and ask yourself how many games would they have won without both of those players this year? And I, I don't think they're anywhere close to the, to the postseason without both of those players. And that's where they are right now. They've got a lot of work ahead. Now you, you expect there to be some growth internally. Some you can expect some of the young players in the farm system has gotten better in, in recent years. I think we'll still consider a, a lot of potential growth from that group. But they're going to have to do a lot of work. If Marcus Simeon signs elsewhere, uh, if Robbie Ray signs elsewhere, a lot of key at-bats from Simeon, a lot of key innings from Ray will have to be covered for. I will say this, a huge surprise for them on the positive side, maybe not a surprise, but a great development. Gabriel Moreno, what he did in the Arizona Fall League behind the plate, I think creates a lot of options for the Jays where if you look at Moreno as being a, a possible major league catcher in 2022, then is Alejandro Kirk an option for them to trade to a team like the Reds as part of a package for a pitcher like a Luis Castillo or to the Oakland A's for someone like a Frankie Montas or a Sean Manaya? Uh, I think it opens up a lot of different avenues, but I would say Jays fans learn that name if you don't know it already. Gabriel Moreno, an OPS better than a 1,000 in the Arizona Fall League this year. He has been a revelation for the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah. Um, I guess if you want to go for the big splash, he would he would be the guy involved in those trade discussions, or is he, or is he like at the the Vlad Junior level of untouchable prospect? I I think both options are possible. I don't think he is a Vlad Junior future franchise player yet in terms of the way that he's viewed. He's 21 years of age, uh, still tremendous amounts of promise and growth there. But the Jays now have to make a decision, and if they're content with the Kirk Jansen McGuire group, then Moreno becomes a, a really intriguing trade option. I don't think he's he is a can't miss prospect along the level of what Vlad Jr. was before he arrived. But the Jays need to be careful and, and realize that is this like trading someone who's going to be as good as Travis Darno has been for a long period of time now in the major leagues, and we saw what Travis did for the Atlanta Braves in winning a World Series. So. Moreno is a name that if, if the Jays, and let's put, let's put it this way, 
I'll circle back and emphasize something I said a moment ago. They're probably not going to be able to bring back both Ray and Semyon. That, that, that I would say is an unrealistic expectation. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, take a look around and see if you like the pitching options that are out there. And, and if you like the fact that you could trade for a, a Luis Castillo, for example, by putting Moreno in the deal, do that and then chase Semyon in free agency while conceding that you're not going to be able to retain Robbie Ray. I think that's probably a good way of hedging where the Jays' needs are right now. Well, you mentioned the Reds. You, you mentioned the A's earlier. It feels like those are the two teams that are going to be, like, picked clean in, in, in trades this offseason. Like, it's, if you're not going to land the big fish in free agency, are you looking at, at the A's? Are you, are you looking at the Reds and specifically uh, Luis Castillo, who was on the market last offseason as well? Those are the, the two teams that are going to be very active as far as trading those players to potential contenders in 2022. I agree. I think those names stand out. I would also mention potentially the Chicago Cubs. Do they make Kyle Hendricks available? And one more team to mention in the, in, from the standpoint of trading starting pitchers, the Miami Marlins. I was told yes. yesterday that whether it's Sergio Alcantara, uh, uh, Felipe Lopez, uh, Eliezer Hernandez, those three names are are all in the same service time class with respect to salary arbitration, all three-plus years of service time. And uh, from my understanding, the Marlins are not under a mandate to trade one of the three, but they've got Sixto Sanchez coming, Jesus Luzardo as well. They have uh, young pitchers coming in, Max Meyer, who was a a first-round pick for them back in 2020. They have some young pitching on the way, so clearing a spot for one of them is an option, and they could trade. I think uh, Alcantara's price tag is really high because he is a, a all-star type pitcher. But I, I really believe that Lopez or Hernandez, both of them would have, I believe, uh, value and also would be somewhat attainable from a standpoint of what the Jays could actually give up in a trade to land one of those two starting pitchers. What about Michael Conforto? Uh, the outfielder. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I tried. I mean, you, well, you well opened done. the door. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I would say, so Conforto, uh, the, the Italian pronunciation is, is actually, no, I, not that. I, I suppose, Conforto, right? Oh, okay. uh, yes. So, uh, but he, he is expected to reject the qualifying offer. Uh, I was a little surprised that he rejected it uh, yeah. because he's coming off such a, a dismal year from his perspective, from a standpoint of production. I I don't see him as being a great fit for the Jays. I, I think their internal outfield options are um, basically as they exist on the roster right now. If, if I'm the Jays, maybe I make a move for one more complimentary bat, but that to me is, is far down the list of priorities after addressing the rotation uh, and then also figuring out what happens with Semyon. Remember, it's not just Ray who's a free agent. Yeah. It's also Steven Matz to whom they did not tender the qualifying offers. The Jays, from where I sit, they have to address two rotation spots and not one. Well, that's it. Like, the, the, the position, uh, the position uh, area of need is second base, and it's third base, clearly. Um, and if you're looking at second base, are you looking at those huge name shortstops and somebody doing a Marcus Semien? Now, Semien had to do it on a one-year prove-it deal, worked out well for him, and I don't know if now he's being viewed again as a shortstop after winning a gold glove at second base. If you're the Blue Jays and we're talking about them making a big splash in free agency, is it is it specifically looking at those two positions? Because 
you know, there's like, there are the Confortos of the world. Of course, there are players that also fit the the, the positional description, like a Kyle Seeger. Uh, plays third base and he's left-handed as well. Could could be a plug-and-play guy for for the Blue Jays. But if they're if they're active in the free agent market and like Ben and, and Shy report are talking to guys that have rejected qualifying offers, is it is it players that fit those positions specifically, or is it just best player and then they'll adjust accordingly after that? No, it's a good question. I, I would say this: one name that stands out to me that I am reasonably confident the Jays have already had some dialogue with is Chris Taylor. And the reason why Chris Taylor is so appealing is the Jays do have some, some veterans in the outfield. Obviously, George Springer and his injuries this past year. Uh, you look at the injury history of their outfielders in general, uh, that would even include you know, Grichuk and, and Teoscar to some extent. You want to build in some flexibility, and Taylor can play in the outfield. He can play shortstop if need be. He can play second base. Part of the Jays' calculus might also be Bo Bichette long-term. Do you, are, are you committed wholeheartedly to the notion that Bo Bichette is going to be your shortstop for the future, or would you consider an infield that has Trevor Story at, at short, perhaps, oh, and, and then you move the rest of the pieces around? I think there are some unique options for them to, to work, work through, and so I, I would imagine that, yes, have a conversation with the agents for a Trevor Story for a Carlos Correa because there could be some possibilities for the Jays to move Bichette elsewhere in the infield to create the best offensive club they can. And for that reason, the flexibility reason, I'm telling you, Ben, Chris Taylor, I expect about half of the teams in baseball to have some legitimate interest in Chris Taylor because he can improve your club with above average defense as an infielder and an outfielder as well. Oh, you don't have to twist my arm. Yeah, I've been I've been banging the the Chris Taylor drum for a while. He seems like an absolutely perfect fit. Uh, this generation's Ben Zobrist. He, he does everything. He's not left-handed, but uh, yeah, no, he can take a walk. He can play all over the diamond. It just feels like John. If you're a Dodger and you're hitting free agency, and the Dodgers want you, they're gonna get you. But that being said, they didn't give Clayton Kershaw the qualifying offer, which I mean still doesn't mean that he's not going to be a Dodger next season. I wonder if, if you know, the $270 million year-over-year payroll Los Angeles Dodgers, if, if that continues, is there any, any indication that maybe they're, they're not just going to outspend everybody this offseason? Well, they have some decisions to make, Ben, and I think it's a fair question the way that you framed it because you look at their future. Do they extend Cody Bellinger? Bellinger bounced back nicely towards the end of the season. Uh, at some point in time, you have to either extend him or perhaps consider trading him. Now, you look around the rest of the diamond. They did let Kike Hernandez go to Boston last winter. Uh, they did not give the qualifying offer to Kershaw. What do they do with Kenley Jansen? What do they do with Corey Knable, who was a, a part of their bullpen? They have a lot of decisions to make about what their future club will look like and, and behind the plate. Are you going to extend Will Smith at some point in time here in the near future? There's a lot of big decisions they have to make. So I, I don't know that, that necessarily Kershaw at that price point is, is something they're, they're willing to do. If Clayton is going to insist on being paid the way he's been paid for a long time at the $25 million and up range, uh, he missed half the season, Ben. So yeah. for me, I, I'm not sure that you could credibly make that request if you're Clayton Kershaw's camp. He may well make it. But there's very little to go on 
with respect to expected future production that would merit that level of pay as opposed to a reward for all that he's done for the organization already. Thank you for bringing up Kenley Jansen because, yeah, the, the Blue Jays, so much of their undo, undoing uh, for the majority of the season and maybe the reason they didn't make the playoffs, especially when you missed the playoffs by one game, was the bullpen. And they tried to address it in the offseason, and, and they got some bad luck with, with the injuries uh, when it comes to Kirby Yates and then from Tyler Chatwood uh, performance um, coinciding with the Major League Baseball crackdown on the sticky substances. Bullpens can be tough. John, and, and predicting performance year over year with relievers is difficult. And Kenley Jansen, a couple of years ago, was not that effective. Seemed to have refound it, um, maybe relying more uh, on the off-speed stuff. In, in the postseason, he looked like the old Kenley Jansen. Could you see a potential fit between the Blue Jays and Jansen? You know, interesting name. I, I, for me, Kenley has had all that experience in the National League West in big ballparks. And I, I really think if I'm the Jays and if I'm approaching this offseason, I am concentrating heavily on guys who I know have had success either in the American League or optimally in a hitter-friendly ballpark in the American League. The, the Jays might have to go out there, and, and if they really want to overwhelm someone like a Rysel Iglesias who had a tremendous year with the Angels and got a qualifying offer, you have to go – three years with Iglesias to make it worth his while, three years times 20, something of that ilk. Uh, that's the kind of thing that they may have to really consider doing here. And, and again, you, you can't afford everybody. You can't pay Rice Iglesias $60 million over three years and afford Ray and afford Simeon. It's just that the math is not going to work at a time when the, the long-term contracts for Vlad and for Bo are not that far away in terms of having to really start paying out that money. So the Jays have a window, but it's, it's closing from the standpoint of being able to be aggressive and spend outwardly mm. because the inward expenses are about to become almost overwhelming. And so this is really a sweet spot, Ben, for the Jays this winter. They have got to get this winter right because if they don't and the Yankees go out there and they bring in a Semyon, they bring in a – a Trevor Story or, or a Correa, uh, the, and oh, by the way, the Rays are still the Rays. The Red Sox came within two games of the World Series. Ben, this division is brutal, and yeah. the Jays have to work hard just to keep up. No doubt. Uh, before we let you go, uh, Seiya Suzuki, is that how you pronounce this guy's name? I, I mean, Seiya Suzuki. Yeah, yeah, Seiya Suzuki. He's he's the 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 the, the big international free agent who's available is uh, who's going to be posted out of out of Japan. Uh, he's 27 years old. I, I think he's played all over the diamond, but I think most people view him as an outfielder. The numbers look great. Last year, I was I was banging the drum for Hassan Kim, and maybe he turns it around, but mm, debut season in the major leagues out of Korea for, for the Padres did not go very well. Uh, how, how much do people believe in, in Suzuki? I am a huge fan of Seiya Suzuki. I saw him play two years ago. Uh, in the Premier 12 International Tournament, similar in some respects to what a hockey world championships would look like, that, that level of, of, uh, of talent perhaps in the tournament, and, and he won the MVP. He was dynamic in that tournament. Power, some speed, plays a good right field. I would say for me, Seiya Suzuki will get a, a multi-year deal here in North America. I don't know that he's a good fit for the Jays, 
But I would say the Rangers uh, are, are top of mind for me with respect to Seiya Suzuki. Um, I, there's not a ton of teams that need a corner bat that are going to spend that level of money on him. But I, I, I do think the Rangers are one team to watch carefully. Uh, maybe the Giants as well with Seiya Suzuki. But I'm a huge fan of his talented player, true power hitter, maybe the best power hitter to come from NPB since Hideki Matsui himself. That was John Morosi from MLB Network and Fox Sports on the Fan Drive Time Show with Ben Ennis. Well, that's it for our show. It's been fun. Hopefully, we'll do it again real soon. I think we're back. I want to say we're back next Monday. So, uh, not yes. the listeners don't have to wait too long for the the the. What did, what did you say at the top of the show? The good to a- average to good radio. Yeah, good go. to average. More go. average to good. All right. Um, we also had some requests about potentially playing a game next week. I'm going to leave it up to you. What do you want to play next week? Do you want to play Dragon's Breath? Do you want to turn back some time? Do you want to play It Could Be That, But It Might Be This? You know, we haven't turned back time in a while. Let's uh, let's bring some share into this. Okay, we'll turn back some time next Monday when you and I do Sportsnet Tonight Show. Great job, Double Duty, as the producer and the co-host. Big thanks as well to Tristan Marcajani and Josh Santos. I'm George Russick. That's it for us. CBS Sports will watch you while you sleep.